0: Close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to The Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to The Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brennan Storr. I'm Paul Bestall. And this is the show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 148, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. Paul, my friend, how are you? I'm very well, thank you.
1: Very well, indeed. How's yourself?
0: Well, I'm great, actually. Uh, well, one, I'm safely ensconced here in my, my um, well, the closet, basically, to cut down on echo, and I, I'm kind of used to it. I'm finding it very calming. It's like those, those, those old condors, you know, they put the hood over them make them all docile. It's like me. I'm very docile here. (laughs) It (laughs) looks
1: like you're about to start preparing yourself for experiments like altered states.
0: (laughs) I have been into a sensory deprivation booth and come out a very, very different person. So that fits. That fits. (laughs) And folks, if you want to see what this particular setup, this, uh, whatever you want to call it, my recording booth, we'll call it generously, looks like, uh, head on over to the brand new Ghost Guys Facebook group it is called the ghost story guys finally made a facebook group or the ghost story guys finally made a group they wouldn't let us use the word facebook in the title mm. and uh yeah come on by say hi and you can see a picture of me hanging out in the closet you know, in addition to hanging out here in my super fancy recording studio composed mostly of the towel I use strange 2.0 is now in stores so i am again found everywhere fine books are sold but mostly amazon actually entirely amazon right now <laughs> but i'm very excited, man. It's super cool. I, uh, I kind of thought, ah, oh, strange, who gives a shit, you know, because uh, obviously, if our listeners know, uh, I assume you know, because you've been listening, if you've been listening for a while, you know, I, back in 2016, my book, A Strange Little Place, The Hauntings and Unexplained Events of One Small Town, came out. And then in April of this year, I was notified by the publisher, Llewellyn, that they were returning the rights to me. They were taking the book out of print. Sales had, had slowed enough that it just wasn't worth continuing to print it. And my plan was just to kind of go, okay, well, you know, pitch it in the bin. Uh, but then you suggested to me I approach Beyond the Fray Publishing, which is, of course, uh, Shannon and, and G. Michael Hopf and uh, Shannon from Into the Fray, Shannon LeGros. Uh, mm-hmm. I assume she needs no introduction, but just in case. But yeah, and so I did and they picked it up. And, and as our listeners will know, I spent a few months sort of retooling it. I removed some stuff. I added a bunch more. Uh, I added... I updated some chapters, updated some stories, updated, added, some, again, a couple of new chapters with some new stuff that had come in, some stuff that had happened to me. And it finally, on Tuesday, so two mm-hmm. days ago, it finally hit stores. You can get it again on Amazon. The title is a little different. It's A Strange Little Place, The Paranormal Secrets of Revelstoke, British Columbia, to differentiate it from the, the previous edition. But we have a wonderful new cover from Doug Hogan, at, mm-hmm. who does a lot of work for Beyond the Fray. It's so, so cool. And I'm just excited to have it out in the world. And a lot of folks have picked it up. We actually beat out old Z bags (laughs) very, very briefly on the Canadian, uh, I think, unexplained charts or whatever on Amazon. Uh, So I've screen capped that. And I like like the time you and I passed Seth Rogen's podcast (laughs) on the UK charts, I also screen capped that. And I will have that on my tombstone as well. (laughs) Seth Rogen, if you're hearing this, and we both know you are, we're coming for you.
1: Taken Malta. He's next.
0: Malta. Are you? Are you big in Malta?
1: Yeah, I'm top ten in Malta.
0: Fantastic.
1: And Cyprus. And Slovakia. Slovakia. Yeah.
0: Okay. I was going to say those other two. I I think there's like some Mediterranean in you. You you sort of spiritually are from there, I think. But Mm. uh, Slovakia. That's interesting.
1: Yes. Yes. Just all these places I'd like to revisit or visit for the first. I've never been to Slovakia.
0: Nor I. Come to think of it. Mm. I've been to Cyprus. Have you been to Malta? No. No, yeah. Interesting. I just watched a film set in Malta, Accident Man 2 Hitman's Holiday. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, it's it's shot in it's shot in and around Malta. And folks, this has nothing to do with my book or with Ghost guys, but if you like action movies, holy shit, rent uh Accident Man 2 Hitman's Holiday. It is so much fun. It's a direct to video action movie. They shot it in like 20 days, but just it's just a fucking blast. It's starring Scott Atkins. So so good. Mm-hmm.
1: Obviously Malta is also where, they, uh, where Disney filmed their infamous version of Popeye. Oh, the one with Robin Williams? Yeah, and the village is still there. You can is visit it. it. Yeah.
0: I would love to, even though I, that movie, I think I still have nightmares about that movie. <laughs> I would love to see that village.
1: <laughs> yeah, there were some strange things passing for entertainment in the early part of the 80s. That's when Disney's dark period, wasn't it? When they were really struggling.
0: Well, when they, if they're putting out stuff like that, I can understand why. That, that's a Robert Altman film, too. Yeah. I don't know how much <laughs> cocaine had to be done in order for anyone to think that was a good idea, but my, my gut tells me the answer is a lot.
1: Yeah, some strange films. The Black Hole's another weird one.
0: Still have never seen Black Hole.
1: Yeah, I watched it as a child. It's one of those films where you're like, at 10, going, what, why am I being made to watch this? <laughs> this is really boring. It's that post-Star Wars carpet bombing of let's just make
0: sci-fi films oh yeah yeah and many of which are excruciatingly boring which i have to sadly lump tron in with hmm. tron is like a, a coma on screen yeah looks nice it does, it look yeah absolutely looks great if you you know get high throw on a, a record of something else entirely and just watch listen to tron or watch <laughs> tron and listen to that i think you might have something there but Man, you try watching Tron unironically uh, and just engaging with the story, you're either going to have a real long nap or possibly just become so bored you start seeing the hat man. One of the two. (laughs) So, yeah. So, strange 2.0 is out. Again, you can find a link in the show notes. It's on Amazon. And uh, eventually, I'll be selling signed copies. I don't know when. Uh, We haven't really talked about author copies, things like that, beyond the fray yet. But um, for now, it's on Amazon, in Kindle, and in paperback. There will be an audiobook coming. Uh, I'm actually working on another audiobook project right now, which is not for something I've written, but is for someone else. Uh, so once that's done, then I'll start on the audiobook for Strange. And uh, that actually is a spooky project. So once that's done, I'll mention that on here too. And you fine folks will be the, the first to know.
1: Yeah. Even my mum's asked me to buy her a copy of Strange Place. I've,
0: oh, Jesus. I don't know why I was thinking um, Black Hole. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, she really loves
0: Popeye. <laughs> well, I can understand because you wrote the forward for my <laughs> yes. book, which I was honored by.
1: Yeah. So, oh yeah, it was a, a, a great honor. But uh, yeah, she said, oh, right, you can get me that for Christmas. All right. So I was like, okay, that's one less thing to worry about. Not that I'm only <laughs> going to buy her a book. I'm not that tight. <laughs>
0: Here's a $20 book. Get fucked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Three pound bottle of Aspie Spermante. Go crazy.
0: <laughs> you're all heart, Bestel. You're all heart.
1: And a tangerine.
0: Well, now, now you're, you're spoiling them now. <laughs> and actually, the last thing before we move on and talk about this episode, which is I'm really excited about, because it's about scary shit that happens in the air. Yeah. And there are far, I think there's the only other place that might be as scary for when something goes wrong is when you're really far underground. Mm. But um, I had someone, I have a couple people ask me if- uh, if their kindle copies of the previous edition will just like update like a software update with the new book and uh sadly the answer is no that's not possible they're, they're two different publishers so that's yeah unfortunately not doable but that said if you do want to read the book in kindle it's much cheaper than in print also uh you can access it through kindle unlimited so that's that's another way to get at it oh. if you really want so Unfortunately, for those of you folks who bought the previous version, as I, as I know a lot of you have over the years, which I very much appreciate. Unfortunately, upgrading it that way, it's just not possible. But uh, it's pretty cheap to get at. So, yeah. it uh, if you want to want to read things about the night the sky exploded or the flooding darkness, then it is it is out there wherever fine books are sold, but uh, mostly Amazon. All right. So, like we said, on this episode, we're going to be talking about terror in the skies. And we're going to be, we're going to be telling some great stories, including a fantastic story that Paul and I are going to be t- taking turns to tell from the book Ghosts of the Air Ooh. by Martin Caden. Uh, I think my favorite story from that book. And then we're also going to take a little bit of a look at some of the crazier conspiracy theories <laughs> revolving around certain plane-related things, some of which really really caused me to question my sanity. Not because I think they're true, but because so many people do. Uh, But we'll get there. In the meantime, we have to thank our patrons.
2: This one's for
0: the patrons. Patrons, you're the lizard man craziness to our David Icke, which is to say that without you, we'd just be living quietly out in the country somewhere, probably tending to our garden and not bothering anyone. Instead, here we are, bothering the shit out of everyone. And by God, we love you for it. Really, everyone who listens to The Ghost Story, guys, you help make us who we are. But patrons, you're the ones who pay the bills. You're the ones who allow this big, crazy machine to work. And we really, really appreciate it. And of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons. But we'd especially like to thank our latest patrons. They are... Amber Morrissey. Teresa Dorsey. Alicia Fernandez. Janine Lozano. Alistair Thomas. Laurel. Cecily... Mylan, Raleigh Lobsinger, Haley Rivers, Dominic Schlick, Nicole Schrake. Folks, thank you so, so much for supporting what we do. Again, I cannot tell you how much we all appreciate it. And, you know, the show is starting to really grow again. And we're really, we're just, we're all thrilled about that, you know? So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And if you want to join the team, hit to patreon.com slash ghost story guys, that's patreon.com slash ghost story guys. We'll tell you at the end of the show about all the cool shit you get. But we will say, for a dollar a month, you get an ad-free feed. Who doesn't want that? Ads suck. So, again, that's patreon.com slash Guys. Uh, also, quick shout-out, we have a brand new design in our public store. It's Into the Darkness We Go in blue neon. It's super cool. And you'll find a link to that in the show notes. So if you want to pick up a, pick up a new T-shirt, that's where to find it. And finally, shout-out to our composer. Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and composer Jerry Smith. And Jerry is always taking commissions. So if you want to hire them for your next project, shoot them an email at RainyDaysforghosts at gmail.com. And also Jerry composed the music for the latest puppet master film, Dr. Death, which but bo- Yeah. Which I, I think should be out by the time this airs. But uh if not, keep an eye out. And uh when we know for sure that is out, we'll post it on all their socials because Jerry's great, and uh, we want to share their work. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Terror in the Skies. Welcome back. As we said at the top of the show, this episode, we're going to be talking about terror in the air. So that's stories of haunting in either on planes, around planes, or just weird things associated with planes. And we've got some great stories of what appear to be like kind of time slips and not quite phantom airports, but deeply unsettling airports. And of course, Denver International Airport, for Christ's sakes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh and Paul's going to tell us a little bit about flight MH370 but before we get there of course we got to check the mail
2: our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs we're ready to believe you
0: all right because we have uh we have quite a long script this time around but we're going to keep the uh listener mail pretty short but there's a couple things that we wanted to get to so first up is Lee and Lee says Hello, boys. I call you boys because I know I'm older than you both. Hey, that's fine fine with us. My father was born with a call, and he Uh. would tell stories about his mother asking for her fortune told. Well, I'm the fifth of seven, and three of us have psychic incidents happen to us. So is psychic ability inherited? Also, thank you for your mental health messages in each show. My brother committed suicide on December 1st, 1980. I was 25, and it still affects me at 67. See? Told you I was older than you both. Keep up the good work. Love your podcast. <laughs> Seven Thank children
1: you, and born with a call. Not much more psychically uh, evaluating there than that.
0: Yeah, I I, I definitely think there's a genetic, a genetic component to that kind of stuff. Lee, there definitely seems to be a lot of indication that, um, yeah, that, that that is very much the case. And a reminder of listeners who may not be familiar, Paul, uh, what a call is.
1: A call is a membrane that is remaining on the child's head when it's born and right. has been designated as a magical item to the part that here in the UK, sailors would pay large amounts of money for them because people would keep them um, because it was supposed to guarantee that they would never drown at sea.
0: Interesting. I forgot about that part.
1: Oh, Yes. So uh, anybody with a call is also supposedly special in a psychic or magical way.
0: Well, there you go, Lee. So that uh, may help explain that to a certain degree. Mm. Thank you for listening, Matt.
1: Our next missive is from Nicole, who says, Hello. I just wanted to say I really love your show. I discovered it whilst going through breast cancer treatment, and it has been there for me through the worst of it. I listened to your Chicago episode last night, and I have a really good ghost sighting from Chicago that I will have to send you via email. Thanks again for all you guys do.
0: I'll thank you, Nicole. and uh we would love to hear your your ghost sighting from Chicago. I know Nicole sent us in via Instagram and i uh, I responded to her separately, but uh yeah, I'll say it here too. I would love to hear your stories. Anyone really if you got a story to tell ghost at gmail dot com we would love to hear it and Nicole again, thank you so much for the kind words and we're happy that we can provides some comfort to you as you're, as you're going through this. I know that's a rough road and, uh, you know, we're, we're proud of you for making it this far and yeah, we, we hope that, uh, we hope that everything turns out all right.
1: Yeah. Keep kicking that shit in the ass.
0: Exactly. Fuck cancer. Absolutely. So this next message is from Brooke. Hi guys. My name is Brooke. I'm from the historic triangle area of Virginia. My brother-in-law passed recently on August 14th and we found out he had written a song about it. This isn't exactly ghosty, but I want to share it with you anyways, because I don't know who else would appreciate it as much as you all. His name was Garrett Long, and he was a songwriter and singer, but his real talent was writing. Sometime in November 2021, he decided to do some shrooms that clearly led him to a really unique conclusion, and he ended up writing and doing a concept recording for a song that I'll include in the email, along with a photo of him and his motorcycle and my son Buck. He bought my husband's motorcycle in the middle of June. He had gotten his license by the end of July and by August 14th, he had left us. He had come over late Sunday afternoon to eat some Chinese takeout. He had just discovered he really liked beef on a stick. He was showing his brother, my husband, all the alterations he had made to the bike. He was so proud, guys. He was looking more happy and alive than we had seen him in months. He and I were talking about an upcoming trip to Baltimore the entire family was supposed to take. It was a normal day. He left around 7pm on his bike and was heading to a bar for his friend's birthday. By 10.30pm, he was dead. He lost control of his bike on his short trip home. He had work in the morning. My husband and I were at home watching the Disney movie Holes at the time of his death. I know, I had to make that distinction. He was an amazing friend and honestly the perfect weird uncle for my kids. I have his nipple ring in my purse for, I guess, good luck. You can look him up on Spotify and Apple Music. Thanks for being a safe place for me to share this horrible situation. And uh Brooke, we're sorry. We're so, so sorry. That's so fucking awful. hmm um, we, and I, I, Brooke was kind enough to send Garrett's song and we're going to be playing that at the end of the show instead of our usual outro music, because it is a really beautiful song. And I think it's uh it's got a message that we could all benefit from hearing, especially now. So, uh, Brooke, again, I, I we, we, have spoken a little bit over email, but, uh, we're, we're happy that you felt comfortable enough to share this with us. And, uh, a lot of folks are going to hear Garrett's song. So again, we, we're happy we can do that much for you.
1: Our final message is from Ruth. And Ruth says, I should never have fallen asleep to the Chicago episode. There's Brennan with me at my favorite Rochester, New York restaurant. And he's complaining that there's not enough bacon on his poutine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Paul, on the other hand, is having a martini at the bar with the Bodega cat and seems to be having a serious conversation with her. And as I said to that post (laughs) on the Facebook group, you can only drink martini in the company of the Bodega cat.
0: That's it. That's the only way. That's the only way it works. Um, and actually, that that reminded me. There's a great song by the Irish Rovers. Are you familiar with it, Paul? Wasn't that a party? No. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, tell me more. it's a it's a brilliant song. Uh, it's a, just it it this goofy song that kind of yeah details this party that went wrong. And uh, you know, I I one second, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look up the lyrics because it's been a long time since I've heard it. OK, so yeah, this is from this is from uh, "Wasn't That a Party" by the Irish Rovers. The lyric is, uh, "Someone took a grapefruit and wore it like a hat. I saw someone under my kitchen table talking to my old Tom cat. They were talking about hockey, and the cat was talking back. <laughs> Along about then, everything went black, but wasn't that a party? And uh, yeah, if there's anyone going to be talking hockey under a table with a cat, it is, in fact, the great Paul Bestel. <laughs> So thank you, Ruth. I th- that was yeah that was a hoot. I would absolutely complain about there not being enough bacon on my poutine. I, man, I I haven't had a poutine in years. I, I'm actually just discovering that I can eat cheese again. So I I in you know I can't go crazy, but I can have little bits because I, I for about six years I stopped eating it because I developed an allergy, and so yeah, little again little bits. But anyways, at some point I'm gonna have uh, a couple bites of fucking poutine because <laughs> Ruth, you put it in my head.
1: Is poutine that weird thing that you Canadians like that's chips, gravy, cheese, and bacon?
0: Uh, it doesn't have to have bacon. Yeah, you, it's chips, gravy, and then uh, cheese curds. Yeah, specifically cheese curds, yes. not shredded cheese. That's cheesy chips. It's different.
1: Yes, yes,
0: yes. Important yes. distinction.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's the gravy and cheese that makes me feel a bit... I mean, I've tried it. We, we have poutine trucks here. Really? Hmm? Hipsters, aren't there in Sheffield?
0: Ah, uh, of course. I always forget about the hipsters.
1: Got to be careful we don't get the gravy in the bed,
0: though. <laughs> yeah, that, that goes badly for everyone. Mm. All right. Well, thanks again, to everyone who wrote in. Because, we, again, I, I suspect this is going to be a long show. We kept it light on email. But uh, please, we love hearing from you. Even if we don't email everyone back, and this is the volume thing, we love, love, love hearing from you. We read everything you send, and we will always try and get it, as much of it as we can in the show. We do have, a, we're planning on a listener story show coming up. Because we've had a few people send in voice recordings. Uh, again, we've retired the ghost line, and now people, if you want to send a story, if you want to dictate it in, you just send it in. You know, do it as a voice note on your phone. Attach it to an email. Send it to us at, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. and uh, yeah, we'll play it on an upcoming show. Okay, so now before we get to terror of the air, uh, well, I guess this is all. This is part of it. We're we are, we're gonna we're <laughs> gonna again with the foreplay. You know, we're going, to, we're going to gently kiss the neck of the topic.
1: <laughs> I've lived terror in the air. I bet you have. <laughs> You've never, telling you, being on a plane struck by lightning makes you feel really alive.
0: Of course you have. What was that like?
1: It was incredible. Really? Absolutely incredible. Yeah. It was just like a white flat. It was like, it just went, and then this white halo just flew down the outside of the plane. We'd only been in the air about. Ten minutes, five, five, ten minutes. Taking out off out of Barcelona, and uh, wow, every, near near enough everybody on the plane just went ah, ah! <laughs> and uh, and I was just like, whoa, that's amazing, that's incredible, and there was people like getting their Bibles out, and their rosary beads, and everything. And The yep. person sat next to me burst into tears, and I was like, this is just amazing. This is this is like whoa. And then the pilot went, ladies and gentlemen, I'd just like to reassure you that this plane is designed to be hit by lightning and no damage will have been caused. Thank you. And then we fl- carried on flying back to Manchester.
0: Jesus H. I, Paul, I know I, I use this phrase on the Q&A recently, uh, our two-hour listener q and A. I I would have drowned in my own piss.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, i it's. I mean, I wouldn't say I've flown lots, but I've you know I've had two or three weird things happen on flight. I mean, it was flying over the Atlantic and we dropped five thousand feet because we hit an air pocket. Oh. Which was also at the time I found quite exciting because I was watching Spider Man Two on the in-flight entertainment, <laughs> and it was the, it was, it was like four
0: DX in the air.
1: Yeah, it was. It was the the subway train. Uh, it was the train fight with Doc Ock yep. and Spidey, and it was I was like being flung about everywhere. And the brother-in-law threw up in the aisle. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a bit hairy, actually. The, the the first drop wasn't too bad. The second one was like, shitting hell.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. a long way down.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. It's amazing how quickly you can fall that far. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember there was a British comedian talking about something like that. He was talking about how, you know, you wouldn't buy a, if someone said, hey, here's a sandwich, it's only a pound. You'd think, eh, that's probably going to poison me. Or if someone gave you some, some some uh, you know, cologne or something, and it's only, it's only a pound, you think, well, that's going to, it's really going to burn the shit out of my skin. But if someone says, hey, you, here's a flight for a pound, you're like, Ryanair, here I come. <laughs> and, he, and he said, you know, well, I did that, and I bought the flight, and then we hit an air pocket, and we dropped about, I think he, he was about 1,000 feet, and he said, as we're plummeting down, I thought, well, it was just a pound. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've never had a bad Ryanair flight. I have to say, last time I flew Ryanair, they were lovely, and we we had a we had a, a, a row of seats each flying to Norway.
0: Oh wow! No, I, I've never had a bad Ryanair. I mean, I haven't flown Ryanair in more than ten years, but no, I, I never had any problems with them. The hmm. only the only strange like or unusual thing I had with Ryanair was we was it they they forced us. To, we all had to sit together in a certain part of the plane in order to balance it out. And I'd never <laughs> done that before. It was a not a very busy flight. It was. Uh, Prior mm. to the financial collapse, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. when all the world was green. And uh, yeah, there was like four of us, five of us on this flight. And they said, yeah, we kind of need you all to cluster together. Mm. What, like in a hamster pile? Yeah. I don't really know these people, but I mean, I'll do it. I'm open to it. I'm I'm young and, yeah. you know, what the hell? I'm not getting a lot of action. Let's make this happen. But uh, no, apparently they just wanted us to sit close together. Yeah.
1: I was in a terror, watching a terrorist incident as well, alleged terrorist incident as well, when we were at Manchester Airport waiting for our flight to take off to our we flight to Turkey, either Turkey or Greece. And uh, it was just like these jets escorted this uh, airplane <laughs> to the airport, and we were in the departure lounge watching all these armed police around this plane. It, what, so what happened? Uh, it was just a guy who'd gone balmy on the flight and tried storming the cockpit.
0: Oh, Jesus.
1: Just lost it in, in midair, which can happen, obviously, for some people. Um, sure. And, and, but it was just the fact that we, nobody was moved away from the deep So everybody's like out the window watching it or filming it going, whoa, look at this. Look it,
0: <laughs> uh, Man, after watching that, when, when the rail bridge in Revelstoke caught fire, and the, the 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 railroad ties soaked in creosote were burning so this thick black smoke was just billowing over the over the mm. like away from it and people were just standing in it so they could watch the fire i'm not surprised by anything
1: <laughs> i mean we were delayed 6 hours which was a pain in the ass but, oh uh, jesus yeah we got to the we got to the hotel for breakfast <laughs> After being on one of those, those taxi journeys that you, you think at any any moment, this is, this is the end
0: (laughs) through the mountains. Oh no.
1: When you're really tired and really stressed and all you want to do is chill out. And then we got there and the hotel just, it was like 8am. So uh,
0: a friend of mine had had a, a taxi journey in Turkey that she thought was going to be the end of her life. And then she she got to, eventually, at long last, she got where she was going in one piece, you know, physically, if not emotionally. And uh, <laughs> then because she has red hair, these people kept shouting at her because I guess that culturally is significant. And uh, so she's like, oh, good. I, I'm glad I survived to, to then be shouted at. This is great for me.
1: Yeah. Well, when I was there, they just kept shouting, hey, Tottenham, come for a drink.
0: <laughs> so. Great time. Fair, I mean, you know, look like it'd be fun to party with. I get that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I needed it at forty-six degrees. Oh, oh.
0: man, that no. was hot that week. I cannot imagine. Hmm. All right, so from uh, from the horror that is forty-six degrees in Turkey, <laughs> uh, we we're going to go to well, f- further terror for- stories of horror in the air. <laughs> and before we get to the the the, the stories themselves, though. We, You and I were talking because I found on Reddit, I found this account of someone who had a dream. Now, this person was totally unconnected to... Uh, now, who was the... Was it India Air? Malaysian. Mh370? Malaysian Air. M, yeah. Mh370, which it was, right, it was the Indian Ocean where it went missing. Allegedly. Allegedly. So the person, they, they had no connection to it, but they had a dream where they were in an airport... And they met someone who claimed that they were the pilot for MH370. And they claimed that this person in the dream said, we're going to fly into the trench to reset the magnetic field or something like that, something kooky like that. And so I sent it to you just as a a kind of a weird, you know, isn't this bizarre? Mm. And then you suggested doing a a bit of a dive into some of the conspiracy theories around (laughs) MH370. Yeah. And it it just drove you a little bit crazy.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, It's one of those things, I think, because 2014 was a bad year for Malaysian airs because obviously not only did they have this particular incident, one of their other planes was shot down over Europe in July of that year, um, flying off, flying from Amsterdam and it went over the Ukraine and it was shot down. Nobody's ever, uh, the West have blamed Russia and Russia have blamed the Ukraine, so... Right. That has Sounds never really, right. yeah. So w- within four months, they'd had two major incidents with their planes. Yikes. So, um, I mean, the thing about MH370, I think, because we're so convinced in this modern era that things like this can't happen. Planes cannot vanish off the face of the earth. Since 1948, I think eight just over 80 planes have just gone, vanished, and Re- they've never really? found the plane. They found bits of them. Right. Uh, I think there was one plane that crashed in the Andes in the 80s, and it wasn't found until some hikers stumbled across it in 2015. So wow! even in this modern era, we're not as technologically advanced when it comes to situations like this, I right. think. And it's... I think it was because it was the first real major one where we didn't have sort of a, a real-time look at it, primarily because it happened in the early hours of, of the morning Malaysia time, which about 1 one a.m. Things started going a bit strange with this flight. Um, and it's, it's just really mysterious because there's never really... I think the, the biggest question of this is, is that there isn't a real reason. Everybody's given... Speculation and potential solutions to what happened to to the poor people on this, I think there was two hundred and thirty nine passengers and crew Jesus, and so everything about this whole situation is is very odd, from it changing direction to it carrying on flying for seven and a half eight hours right of course, because obviously it was it was flying from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing right, and it was only. I think an hour, two hours after it was supposed to land in Beijing. The flight was supposed to take five and a half hours. It had enough fuel to fly for about eight, I think. And about an hour after takeoff, communication stopped. And then it just started, it just changed direction and flew off the opposite direction. And that was it. And then obviously within three or four days, all kinds of nonsense started appearing. I mean, there's a lot of a mess, and, you know, the governments of Malaysia were were heavily criticized about how they handled it and you know never never do you believe that you could dive into a a situation where you would be looking at the theories of courtney love rubbing shoulders (laughs) with um, alien abductions and secret u.s weapons tests oh wow so there's there is no real explanation to what happens there's lots of people who've said oh well The captain, because obviously they found, the FBI discovered that the captain had actually got a flight plan on his air simulator he got at home that was very similar to the route that the plane was supposed to have taken. Okay. Which they only discovered afterwards, but it's the fact that there was no communication. People suggested it was a, a, a terrorism incident, but there was never any Ransoms or demands or any organ a couple of organisations tried to claim it, but neither of them were, were were treated with any credibility by China or the West. Really, because because the majority of the passengers, this is the other aspect to this. The majority of the passengers on the flight were Chinese, um, and it was it was just very strange. I think there were people from sixteen different countries, but the vast majority were were Chinese and, and Malaysian. So. It, it's the fact that people just presume. Well, it's it's crashed in the sea. We'll be easily able to find it, and then it all started coming out that they didn't actually know where it had crashed. They weren't sure what the area was. I mean, it's the most expensive search and rescue ever undertaken in the world as of today.
2: Really, nothing's,
1: nothing's cost anything as much as this search has, and they haven't actually found anything. Searching, everything they found has been washed up on beaches. In the Indian Ocean, there's been bits washed up in Africa and Mauritius um Mozambique there's been some bits. I think there's been some bits found on Madagascar um so the all the searches haven't found anything. everything has just been tidally aw- washed on shore in that particular area, so that's why they're now kind of thinking using tidal patterns that it crashed somewhere in the Indian Ocean, but to this day, nobody knows why. They turn because everybody says, Oh, well, a fire might have caused the, the, the passengers and pilot to pass out. Well, who turned the plane around then? Because it did, it physically turns around, yeah, and goes the other way and goes off. So it's supposed to be flying north and it flies southwest and it physically changes direction, it doesn't sort of drift, it physically check, turns direction and goes back. I mean, it's all kinds of things like the Malaysian military didn't realize it had flown through. Restricted airspace for seven hours. So, oh. <laughs> there was a lot of people who's who who were not paying attention when this happened, and that's right. All kinds of things. So, it's just been rife with speculation. Like I say, you know, from people claiming that they were taken by aliens, but then you say, well, why is the bits of the plane left? To being hijacked and flown to Uzbekistan to a secret military US base that's out there to being taken to a different part of China because everybody on it was a political prisoner which isn't true either to it being a pilot led suicide which there's no evidence of um, right they've they've claimed that there was a very weird theory that some Inventors who were on this flight, if because they died, the company that had a 20% stake in it got all their rights to this multi-billion dollar thing that they'd invented. That's not true. I mean, the other thing about this is there are eyewitnesses in the Indian Ocean who were sailing across it, including a woman from England who was laid on a deck of her catamaran just chilling out on a beautiful evening in the Indian Ocean who saw a ball of flyer go across the horizon which they suspect might be the plane.
0: A ball of fire.
1: Yeah. Everybody, I think there are three reports from the Indian Ocean, from two from fishermen and one from this, this lady, and they all say they saw something on fire flying through the sky.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: So, you know, and that's before you even think, I mean, people have said it was hit by a meteor, that lithium batteries exploded causing a... A flight, I mean, there, are, I mean, it could be, it doesn't have to be one particular thing, but the fact is that clearly for me, I, I wouldn't suspect the pilots doing it because I don't think they just fly for eight hours.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're going to kill yourself, you're going to do it.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think the analysis of some of the wreckage that's been found, they found some of the flaps and things, show that it, it fell straight into the sea. It didn't try and land. Oh, okay. So basically it just ran out of fuel and fell out of the sky. Right. But then you just, you know what I mean? It's, it's the whole turning around and flying somewhere else that, that really sets the cat among the pigeons with this particular case, because there isn't one explanation that seems to cover all the bases and tick all the boxes.
0: Well, that is one example of terror in the air. You heard it first from Paul and Courtney Love. <laughs> <laughs> that was an night out. <laughs> I bet it was.
1: <laughs>
0: but now we have a whole other kind of terror lined up for you. And of course, that means it's time for our stories. The Ghost Plane one afternoon when I was ten, my father and I saw something inexplicable in Columbus, Ohio, and to this day I cannot even begin to wrap my head around it. At the time, Dad and I were driving down the road talking about nothing in particular, when I remember looking out the window and seeing a large plane flying really low. If memory serves me right, it appeared really old and was maybe a military plane? We did have an Air Force base it's not far, so that would make sense. I remember being fascinated by the plane and excitedly pointing it out to my dad who continued to drive while occasionally peeking over to look at it. After a few minutes, the plane started to aggressively swerve like the pilot was losing control. Not long after that, it nosedived and flew into a patch of nearby trees. My dad panicked and pulled his truck over to the side of the road. We sat there and looked out the window, but there was nothing. No sound of any kind. No smoke, no fire, No, nothing. The trees didn't even rustle. Everything was calm. We waited. We waited, thinking the plane was going to swerve back up and fly away, but it never emerged. I remember asking Dad what happened, and he was just silent. After a bit, he started driving again, and we headed over to the area. In fact, we drove around for probably an hour trying to find some explanation, but there was nothing. Eventually, we headed back home for dinner, explaining to my mom what we had seen, but I think she thought we were putting her on. I remember how eager we were to turn on the evening news to see if there was any mention of the crash, but again, there was nothing. There was also nothing in the paper the next day. To this day, my dad and I still talk about this. The one thing we can't remember is if the plane was making any sound at all while it was flying in the air. The radio might have been on or the window up. I can't remember. We do know for certain there was no sound from the crash. It was only about half a mile away, so we would have heard something. It's like the plane vanished. And Paul, we were talking about this, you and I. You said this is is not an uncommon thing.
1: No, it's a hotspot where I live. We've got loads of these. Really? Yes. The Peak District is the ghost plane epicenter in the UK. So what are people seeing? Uh, they're seeing old-fashioned World War II planes flying in complete silence in the sky in the day.
0: And they, they just vanish, or do they appear to crash? Both. Interesting.
1: There's different sightings in different areas, but th- these have been reported for over 70 years around here.
0: It's incredible that something like that can be reported that much, mm-hmm. and it still doesn't really rate a mention aside from like local legends, You know, guys talking in the barbershop
1: it's remarkable how unknown it is as a phenomenon it was covered it was covered on a, a uk tv show in the 90s here called strange but true okay but other than that uh it's not really been covered a lot dr david clark's covered it uh on his blog and in his book supernatural peak district but a lot of people both historians and paranormal writers avoid the subject because i think it's something that a lot of people are either not comfortable with or it doesn't fit into their idea of what the paranormal is
0: of course the old if i can't make sense of it or if it doesn't support my bullshit we'll just pretend it doesn't exist routine
1: yep absolutely we've got loads of stories like that around here loads you know i'm not talking two or three i'm talking
0: dozens that's wild man i i had never heard of it and that you then you know after you saw the script you mentioned that this was not an uncommon thing and so I had a look through the comments as well on some of these posts and I found uh, a couple different uh, versions of that I believe from the U.S. Mm. So maybe we'll, we'll take turns uh, reading these here if you want to take the first one.
1: Mm. Yeah, of course. He says lost.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm not the only one.
1: I was nine when this event occurred, New Hampshire, USA, 1988. I had a friend over and we were playing outside in the afternoon. Where I lived was semi-rural, with no airfields or airports. Just beyond the treetops, about 150 yards away, I saw what I thought looked like a four-prop passenger plane, army green in colour, descend rapidly as though coming in too hard for a landing, and then it disappeared behind the trees. There was no crash and no explosion. I asked my friend if he saw that plane and he said, What plane? I lived in a hilly area with no airfields and certainly no fields large enough to accommodate a large plane. This event has always bothered me because I could never explain it. Has anyone else heard of such an event or had something similar
0: happen? So this next one is a little bit shorter. I've seen it when I was younger. When I was five, I remember being in my car, looking out the window and seeing a smaller looking plane. It might even have been a biplane come down. No noise. When it hit the ground, I saw an explosion for a split second, but then it vanished. I said, mom, a plane crashed, but she didn't see it. And just before we jump to the last one we found here, uh, I'm pretty sure Martin Caden talks about Phantom, a number of Phantom biplanes in Ghosts in the Air. Mm. The first chapter, there's that one, it's a base, I think. Uh, I'm just trying to remember where that where the base is, but there were a number of... Uh, ghost biplane stories i'm just going to check the the um is this
1: the one about the plane that lands with no crew uh
0: <laughs> no i don't think so. i know the one you mean that's the one where the the the, the uh, pilots they check in after the mission and they go he sent the uh you know, the- oh no
1: no no yeah 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 it was there was the war and a biplane came into land and they were all like what what are you talking about we don't have any biplanes up in the air
0: yeah exactly Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a biplane that landed in 1940 on Montrose Airfield in Scotland.
0: Yeah, that's the one.
1: Yeah, yeah. And people saw it come in and land and they were all like, what the hell's going on here? And then it disappeared.
0: Yeah. And I'm pretty sure there was another pilot who'd gone up and he was kind of behaving erratically and he radioed something about someone cutting him up. Yeah. And he said (laughs) there was some biplane that was pissing around, uh, kind of messing with him. Mm. And he wanted to know who was up there doing it. And there, not only was there no one up there doing it, no one else saw the plane. No,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want to hear one of the local ones? Hell yeah. Okay. So this is from Dr. David Clark's blog, which okay. is uh, under the ghost flyers section. So as always, David usually went out and interviewed these people firsthand. Right. So this is directly from from that article. Equally sure was a Chesterfield man called Tony Ingle, who was so puzzled by what he saw in the sky over the Peak District that he contacted a local newspaper. Tony was enjoying a holiday break at a caravan park in Hope when he decided to take his golden retriever Ben for a walk one sunny April afternoon in 1995. As they strolled along the leafy Aston Lane, Tony suddenly put her foot backwards in time. And was astounded to see what appeared to be a wartime aircraft flying between 40 and 60 feet in the air above him it was very eerie i could see the propellers going round but there was no sound it was getting lower and lower and i thought crikey that thing's gonna crash it was bizarre i could see it was banking as if trying to turn and then it seemed to just go down over a hedge i ran up the lane to see if i could see anything and I expected to see a plane in the field, but there was nothing, just lambs and sheep. Everything was silent. You could hear a pin drop. The best way I can describe it was if as someone had died. It was a terrible and very eerie sensation. Now, there's a strange bit to this, that Tony has been back to Aston Lane many times, but his, ben, his dog, Ben, refuses to go anywhere near the field where the plane allegedly crashed. No he shit. He just cowers and won't budge and the only time I tried to pull him along he slipped his collar and ran away. So something's going
0: something's going on.
1: Yeah, there was a there was a a, a large well, said large. There were several sightings in in that period, 94, 95, 96. Interesting. And they were all walking in the day in the area of Hope and Castleton which is at the cusp of the Peak District. Beautiful places stunning locations gorgeous when the sun's out stunning vistas just you know extremely popular with tourists so these are these are very steady people just doing normal things who suddenly can see something really weird And a lot of them always say it's the fact that it's silent that what strikes them the most
0: yeah yeah i mean that it, 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 there's so much that sets that apart but i think that more than anything the thing that takes it out of the realm of okay, well, you just saw a plane, or you just saw some kind of weird, you know, av- aviation event, mm-hmm. was the f- is the fact, yeah, there, there's no sound. There, there was a story again. It's it's in the updated version of Strange, and I've I've talked about it a little bit. But I got an email a few years back from this guy who very much wanted to stay anonymous. He was really afraid of being seen as a kook. But mm-hmm. him and his son were out for a drive. Uh, they were going a little bit south of town, and his son pointed out just ahead of them near uh, Williamson's Lake. There was a helicopter flying low above the trees. He was like, oh, that's, that's weird. And, and he kind of, it noticed, you know how sometimes you notice things in stages? I don't know if you've had this experience when you see something that's like really strange. But he noticed that the helicopter was, okay, yeah, it was a helicopter. Uh, wait, hang on. Is that a helicopter? Because it's not making, A, any sound. B, the trees beneath it are not moving. And C, he really started to look at it. And he's like, well, there's some kind of green fog around it. And before he could even fully process this, this thing took off in the direction of town at a a rate much faster than any helicopter could move. And again, totally silent.
1: Mm -hmm. We had another famous incident here in 97, which was seen by dozens of people who claimed to see a plane on fire flying through the sky above Sheffield. Oh. So much so that they scrambled search and rescue, and tornadoes to check the area.
0: It's sort of interesting that the woman with uh, MH370 in the Indian Ocean, she saw a ball of fire as well. Mm -hmm.
1: So people were so concerned, they were ringing the police, and there were hundreds of people went out looking for this. There was an earthquake reported at the same time. Oh. Uh, Not an earthquake. There was something picked up on on, um, seismological... I can't even remember what it was called now. There are seismological instruments in the area checking for for quakes and tremors and they picked something up on that night happening. So people said, oh, well, they they heard a tremor, but that doesn't explain everybody who saw the plane on fire.
0: That doesn't even come close to explaining it.
1: But um, I mean, it it happened and they did scramble everybody. There were so many people who were convinced something serious had happened that it was an an emergency rescue operation was launched and hundreds of people went to the area to try and search for it nothing was found and then of course howden moor and the villages <laughs> surrounding it were then invaded by ufo hunters
0: oh <laughs> of course even worse than phantom plane crashes ufo hunters
1: <laughs> but uh, yeah that's a that's a matter, matter of record in the mod so that's a real event and that they confirmed that they did actually search for it based on the evidence and the witnesses that came forward That was, uh, explained away as a coincidental sighting of a meteor and an earth tremor.
0: (laughs) Oh, sure. Sure. Yep. Yep. It's like, uh, I found it it lodged in this old, old fucking file. It it was this random text file, not a text file. It was, it was a report from some Canadian government institution, but I found it in, in like one of the last pages of a Google search, which is sort of like, Rummaging through the industrial industrial fringes of a city, you know you're you're kind of exposed. You're probably in some kind of danger. You're not entirely sure what you're going to find. <laughs> but I I found this uh, this report, and it was an official account of this uh, sighting. And again, it, this is in the new book. I'm giving it all the here, folks. Um, <laughs> but this guy was uh, I think he was a cop, and he was in the town of Kamloops, which is about two and a half hours to the west. Oh. And yeah, yeah, we were just talking about this. And he spotted this, what he thought was a thousand feet long metal object covered in fire coming out of the sky, and it slowed down and then changed direction and shot off to, the, I want to say, the east. Oh, what balloon hmm, then? Funny enough, it was uh, attributed to a Russian space station,
1: uh, yes, uh, a yeah, yeah. Russian
0: satellite falling to earth, despite the fact that as, you know, even though I am no... Scientist, uh, I'm pretty sure that falling objects do not suddenly uh, change direction and accelerate. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I mean, I didn't know about the Howden Moore incident when I saw my ball of fire above the skies of Sheffield. Oh, interesting. So I don't know. I mean, I clearly saw a ball of fire. I know, as I've said previously before, and I don't want to bore anybody else talking about this again, but I know where it wasn't.
0: Right. It was not- it wasn't it wasn't a Chinese
1: it- lantern, wasn't a yeah. plane,
0: wasn't a meteor, wasn't a comet. It's the big flame in question mark.
1: Absolutely. And I watched it for like 40 minutes.
0: Oh, shit. I forgot it was that long. Yeah. All right. Well, listeners, have you ever seen A Phantom Plane? We would love to know. Go to storyguys at gmail.com. All right. So we're going to take a quick break to pay the bills, and then we'll be back with our next story. Don't forget, if you're a patron at the $1 level and up, you don't have to listen to ads. And hey, who doesn't love that? Ads suck. I said that already. Well, probably worth repeating. <laughs> We'll be right back.
1: Crop Duster A few years back, my mum and dad hit serious financial problems and we had to sell the family farm. It wasn't much, just 10 acres on a dusty little road in central California, but it was their retirement dream and the loss stung. At the very least, they were able to sell it before the bank foreclosed and were able to use the remainder as a down payment on a big cheap house in town. The house was cheap because it was in a bad neighbourhood. Gang activity all around, a shabby liquor store at the end of the block and so on. In addition to all this bad energy, my parents were still sore about losing their dream home and having to live in such a rough place, all of which made the vibe even worse. I decided to move in with them to try and help them out. After I'd been living there for a while, I began to notice strange occurrences. Doors slamming for no reason. Waking up in the middle of the night thinking someone had called my name. The occasional sensation of being watched. That kind of stuff. I was working night shift at a local medical facility while going to college part-time during the day. One evening, I was getting ready for work and had stepped out of the bathroom into the hallway when, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a little girl in a party dress slowly waving at me. A chill went through me and I spun around towards her, but of course there was no one there. I shook it off and then went downstairs while my mother was standing at the kitchen sink making dinner. I laughingly told her that I must be working too hard and then explained where I thought I'd seen. All the blood drained from her face, her knees buckled and I had to rush over to support her so she didn't fall. She wouldn't look at me, but I could see tears rolling down her cheeks and her voice was trembling as she told me that both her and my father had also seen her. I went to work not knowing what to think and worked myself into exhaustion hoping that the fatigue would help me forget it. After my shift, I crashed out, but I was awoken around 11am to voices in the living room. When I ventured out to see what was going on, I found our parish priest in the living room blessing the house. I decided I wasn't going to be around for that, so I got dressed and went to a friend's house to chill for a while. When I got back home, I found that my mother had bought a life-sized little girl doll and propped it up on the spot where we had all seen her. When I asked my mother about it, she refused to talk about it, telling me to forget it and that she was never going to speak of it again. I never saw the little girl after that, just the doll standing in her spot. A few months later, I had moved out of the house back into my own place and was having some beers with friends. A couple of drinks deep, they started talking about a small plane crash at the local airport and one of them mentions a crop duster pilot that died in my parents' house. You can imagine my shock. It turns out that many years before my parents bought the place, there was a local crop duster who was notorious for flying in contraband from Mexico. Apparently this guy had crossed the wrong people, so he ended up being murdered in his own house with the house partially burned down around him. I never went back there again after dark, and even during the day the place was just low-key uninviting. Not sure how to describe it, but if it were a person, I would say it was weird and unfriendly.
0: I, I got to say, I love this idea that you're seeing a ghost, like a ghost girl in your house. You don't want to see the ghost girl anymore. So you just buy a doll and put it where the doll the ghost normally stands. A
1: life-size
0: doll. A life-size doll, <laughs> yeah.
1: Because that's what you want to see at three in the morning.
0: Well, I, I guess it makes a kind of dark sense. Is that the little girl? No, it's just a doll. It's just a doll. But I, I want to see this applied to other things in life you know like, like they're living in a bad neighborhood so they just have like a like a mugger scarecrow that just outside their house you know the, the you know there's some actual muggers about to you know rock up on him and he's he's a mugger scarecrow and he's like oh someone else has already claimed this particular corner i better get going you know this that's really what this is this this is a, a brand new scarecrow phenomenon and i'm kind of here for it
1: <laughs> it'll be good until the the doll started dancing
0: i think well, yeah, okay, yeah. It, well, everything is fine until the scarecrow starts dancing. Yeah, yeah.
1: Maybe I've seen that Megan trailer too many times already.
0: Oh man, for, for our listeners who don't don't know, Megan is is a, a horror movie coming out in January, and it's about yeah, like a like a an evil doll that is programmed to be a kid's friend, but you know, because the creators of the doll have never seen Westworld or indeed any science fiction film. <laughs> um they've given it you know some kind of artificial intelligence a neural net that will absolutely end with it becoming a serial killer but i, I know that started they've really started pushing that on twitter and using sort of ai chat bots to kind yeah. of chat people <laughs> up in their dms and i thought about this and i thought it's too fucking early this movie doesn't come out until january no all the enthusiasm for this is going to be petered out by then if already i'm get, like i get enough shitty dms from people who think they're podcast promoters despite the fact they have fewer followers than I do and never mind getting one from a you know an AI chatbot that you know desperately wants me to watch its movie no no thank you
1: somebody shared their conversation and it really made me laugh in a kind of I'm glad that's happening to you (laughs) I really like you I'll dance for you no stop that
0: please block block that's even more disturbing because the doll is a child size (laughs) This now I'm on a watch list. Thanks, Megan. <laughs> I got a text from Ghislaine Maxwell now. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh. At least Elon's bought Twitter now. The whole thing will just fucking collapse. We don't have to think about it. <sighs> on on the uh, going back to the story, <laughs> the narrator in the story talks about how she decided to just like work, use work to deal with the like work herself to exhaustion, so she didn't have to deal with. A situation, and uh, I spent the first half of this year doing that. Mm. And uh, yeah, no, it doesn't work. Just no. in case anyone out there is going, oh, this is a good coping strategy. No, take it from Uncle Brent sitting here in the closet. That shit does not work. All you do is end up getting uh, heavier than you were, and real, real sad. So uh, yeah, that's some some. Uh, that's a public service announcement from Uncle Brent. Yes, my brain doesn't allow that kind of thing to happen. Being sad in a closet, or the working to exhaustion. <laughs>
1: Working to exhaustion, it doesn't work because at midnight, my brain goes, hello.
0: <laughs> what do you want to watch? See, I, that I, what I was doing, I was just like, I was literally working till midnight one in the morning and then I would do that. I would think, oh, okay, I'll, I'm, now I'll, I'll stop working. I'll go watch a movie. And then I would fall asleep within 30 minutes, mm. you know? But if I if I was if I was trying to go to sleep, if I, I'm not going to watch a movie. I'm just going to go, no, there's no chance. Mm. Can we torment you with every mistake you've made or might have made? <laughs> It's like a bad, okay, Google search. <laughs> Did you mean a terrifying cavalcade of everything that's gone wrong in your life or might gone wrong? No, that, no, that's not what I meant at all. <laughs> I think you meant torment. Okay, sure. <laughs> Calling Megan. Sure, why not? What the hell? <laughs> See if Ghislaine wants to play words with friends. <laughs> um, but what I was going to say is uh, obviously there's, there's the pilot who was known for flying contraband. And it went very badly for him, as it often does when you involve yourself with those elements. Um, But there was a really cool story in um, Ghosts in the Air. Martin Caden talks about this uh, pilot named Bob Hanley. And uh, back in the 20s, Hanley was 17, but he'd been flying for a few years. He was a real hotshot. And he got to know this guy in school down in Florida, this guy named Frank. And I guess one day uh, Frank says, Hey, you should come meet my dad because he knew that Bob Hanley was a hotshot pilot. So they went to this this party in Florida, and his dad was Al Capone, and uh, you know Al Capone took a break from beating the crap out of guys with baseball bats <laughs> and being chased by Sean Connery to uh, to say, hey, you know you should bootleg for us, and so he did. He hired this kid to fly something like twenty six cases of booze on every flight, and I I want to say he made close to seven hundred bucks for each delivery, and and in, in to put that in perspective, this is nineteen twenty six. I did the numbers. That's about $11,000 uh, a flight. So, okay. you know, yeah, he's, you're making great money. But I guess the idea was he would go to Bermuda uh, and he would, or the Bahamas, he'd go to Freehold, I think it was called. Freeport. Freeport. Thank you.
1: It's in the Bahamas.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Freeport. So they would load up the plane and then he'd fly to Biscayne Bay. But this one day or one night, I guess, he was waiting for them to load up. All of a sudden, the Coast Guard comes roaring around the corner. <laughs> And so Bob Hanley goes, well, you know, I got to get the fuck out of here. (laughs) And so he puts a float plane, you know, hops in, takes off. But for whatever reason, I guess because he was 17, he decided (laughs) to buzz the Coast Guard boat, you know, like you cost me $11,000, you bastards. And so he buzzes the boat and they shot at him because of course they did. (laughs) And so the stupid son of a bitch took a round in the leg and uh, his boots started filling with blood and he literally passed out from shock. And it was just a stone cold miracle that the plane did not crash. It ended up just drifting because it was a, a float plane. It drifted into a mangrove swamp, and uh, eventually Capone's guys found him. They took him back, and um, he he healed up and went back to work. He paid for his entire college education bootlegging for Al Capone down in down in the Bahamas. <laughs> and uh, I think there was another thing. Yeah, yeah. So Hanley, he yeah. So Hanley ended up making about eighty trips. For Capone, which you'd think would be enough to kind of convince you that, all right, you know, you you've used up all your luck. But then he had two different incidents where a phantom voice kept him from dying. Mm-hmm. And one of them, he was flying into, oh shit, what is it? He was flying into, one of them I think was Catalina Island. Uh, but the other one, the, the really hairy one, was when he was flying a commercial plane and one of his passengers was having a medical emergency. So he had to reroute to Salt Lake City. And I guess Salt Lake City Airport or at the time was in a, a valley, this place called the Diablo Canyon. <laughs> yeah, right. So he had to divert there and it was the middle of a snowstorm. So that's bad enough. But I guess the, the, the beacon technology they used at the time, you know, the thing that uh, you lock on lock onto to lure you back in or to bring you in when there's no uh no visibility. Mm. Back then those beams were really susceptible to things like snow. Yeah. So he's, he's trying to come in, he's trying to come in and all he's got is the beacon. So he's just locked onto the beacon and all of a sudden he hears a voice over his shoulder say, go to the right. And he said it was such a tense situation. He was, or sorry, pardon me, the, the voice says, Bob, get over to the left. And he was, he was pissed because he said, you know, it, it was a really <laughs> tense situation. I don't need a fucking backseat driver. And he started to, uh, he, started, he was, was going to ignore it But then he's like, shit, that voice sounds familiar. He realized the voice was a man named Harold Tucker, who was an old co-pilot of his. Harold was dead at the time this happened. And Bob thought, okay. And then he heard it again, get over to the left. So he he moved the plane to the left of the beacon. And sure enough, when they finally dropped under the cloud cover, he missed his right wing, missed the canyon wall by feet. (laughs) So, you know, again, bootlegging for Al Capone uh, did not burn up all of his luck but I, I have to imagine that one finally did yeah
1: you'd be uh putting those uh <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be putting those flight boots away after that and uh, i'd be getting a taxi <laughs> everywhere yeah.
0: well I, I gotta say man I, I i find planes boring as shit um i don't like fly flying. with me you won't <laughs> i'm just imagining doing shots on the plane <laughs> never drink on a plane really Yep. Why? Why is that? I just don't enjoy
1: the effect of alcohol and high pressure situations.
0: <laughs> Fair. Okay.
1: I'm happy with with some crisps.
0: Man, I admire that. You're just up there, raw dog in reality, twenty thousand feet in the air
1: <laughs> <laughs> with a box of Pringles.
0: <laughs> Denver International. Sometime in 2015, while living in Colorado Springs, I decided to fly out of state to see family. My home airport was DIA, Denver International Airport, and the outbound flight was uneventful. It was on my return trip that the incident happened. For those of you who haven't been, Denver Airport is big enough to need a train between its three gates, so when you deplane, you have to take the stairs down to a station where you pick up a tram to baggage claim. My flight was on a midweek evening meaning the airport was quiet to begin with and a train had just departed when I got down at the station, so there were only four or five people waiting. Rolling my suitcase over to a nearby wall, I texted my friend Abby, who was waiting to pick me up. As I did this, my gaze drifted up to the glass doors, which separated the waiting area from the tracks, and saw my reflection. Also in this reflection was a little girl, maybe six or seven, standing right next to me and looking at me intently. My immediate reaction was to look in her direction and ask where her parents were, but when I did, there was no one there. Looking back toward my reflection, the girl had returned, standing in exactly the same place. I stood up and spun in a circle, but there was no one standing anywhere near me. The closest person had to be 20 feet away. No doubt the spinning made me look like an idiot or a crazy person to those people, but I was beyond caring. Something was not right. No matter where I looked, the little girl could only be found in reflection. At length, the train began to arrive, and just before it did, the little girl put her hand up to wave at me. Then she disappeared. On my way home, my main thought was, of course, my first ghost sighting would happen at DIA. And okay, folks, so this this is where Uncle Bren talks to you a little bit about mental illness, but not the kind we usually talk about. Because Denver International Airport is, is the, if you don't know, and I'm sure most of you guys do, you're pretty savvy with this stuff. Denver International Airport is the subject of so many crackpot conspiracy theories that I started to get sad reading about them in preparation for this segment.
1: That's only because the Illuminati want you to think that, bro. Oh
0: Oh, god! So you know, Denver basically outgrew Stapleton Airport. That that was its original airport. So they decided—I don't know the dates—that they decided we're going to you know going to build a new airport. And you know, Colorado—I don't know if you know this. There's a lot of open space. So they decided, okay, we're going to get a fuck huge piece of land so we can build an airport and we're going to build the most modern airport we can. And they had this crazy idea for like an automated baggage system that was going to be state of the art. I think it's supposed to be about a billion and a half dollars. And this is you know, it was a while ago, so this is serious money. I mean, it's serious money now, but even more serious money then. And yeah, they built it on a massive fucking piece of land. Because again, they wanted to They, you know, at the time, you know, they had not hit yet the reef of the housing crisis and every other garbage thing that's happened since then. You know, they thought, oh, hey, the economy is really great. Things are going to keep growing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people, there'll be a lot more flights. People be flying more. It's way over the future. So they built Denver International with a shit ton of space so they could um, expand it should they need to. Mm. But... Or did they? Mm. God. <laughs> So this has turned into you know there there's it's 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 a wonderfully American, even though you know these conspiracy theorists are from all around the world. It's such a wonderfully American thing because instead of thinking oh all this technological like this these people were dreaming big and they were going to make something gleaming and shining and new. No 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 it's lizard people. It's got to be lizard people. They all we we cannot have new nice nice new things. Everything must spring forward from the forehead of a lizard monster. (laughs) <laughs> and sometime in the, I want to say what the early two thousands, the story started going around. Someone alleged to have gone down like six floors beneath the airport, and they claimed various crazy ass things. You know, there was uh, one that there's six floors worth of fucking underground compound there. That there's tunnels, the bunkers. Yeah, and you know, very depending on who you ask, the bunkers are home to, you know those like the adrenochrome bullshit that people believe. Um, you know. Which they claim is harvested from children. A story, which I should add, a story that the whole Adrenochrome thing that originated in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yep. And he admitted repeatedly in the years following that book, he made it up. Hmm. He just made it up because he would do that. That's. I mean, I I'm, I I do think Hunter S. Thompson is an interesting character, and I think he was genuinely a genius. That like some of his writing is very evocative, hmm. but I have a real problem with how he would invent things because people took everything he said seriously. Yeah, and now we have these—you know—some idiot shot up a pizza parlor because he, th- he thought there were people harvesting kids' brains in the basement of a place that had no basement. Mm. And so th- this kind of grew and grew, and and Denver—I think it's might be all of Colorado, or it might just be Denver. I'm not sure. But there's this there's this thing that says, I think it's called the one percent, one percent for the arts. But any large scale municipal project, I think it's municipal, one percent of the budget has to go to art. Yep. Yeah. So they, they paid, I want to say like 30 or 40 artists to do their thing yeah. in, in the airport. So, and so there's some wild shit in there and, and, and this just, this happens, right? Like if you look at the, what do you call it? The WPA during the depression, you know, when the, when the government started paying artists to just make stuff, some of that WPA art is fucking terrible, but some of it is really quite odd because you're yeah. just saying to people, Hey, go make shit. and Free I right. don't know if, That's it. And I don't know if you guys know this, if you know any artists. We're pretty fucking weird. So, so, a lot of the shit that got made was weird. And there's, in particular, uh, there's this these murals which have come to be identified as. I don't know why people think the Illuminati or the lizard monsters or whatever new would need order. to give us. The, sorry,
1: it's the New World Order. It's showing right. the end of the world.
0: Right. Yeah, the New World Order is showing <laughs> the end of the world. Thank you. Yeah, I forgot that. Yeah,
1: I fell down this rabbit hole a long time ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> I I remember um, I, I had Canel, the battle rapper on large of the truth. He was my last guest. Mm. And um, we were talking about this and he said, man, I, w- I miss when, when uh, conspiracy theories were fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he said, you get a little wavy and you kind of just sit around with your friends and talk about all the mad bullshit you've seen online. And it was harmless. And he said, now it's it, people, you know, hardcore believe everything that comes out. So he says, there's, there's no fun in it. But um, yeah, so people claim these murals are like Illuminati, New World Order. Uh, this sort of like they're they're depicting the end. This is this is their plan, and it's not true at all. Because and, and the story also goes that you know the the artist disappeared, and he was like he was made to go away and horseshit horseshit horseshit. And it's not true. I, I've read several interviews now with that artist. Uh, his name's Leopold. I can't remember his last name. He still lives in Denver. He still lives in the area. And he he just, he he just, he gave him the money and said, do what you're going to do. And he was never told what to paint, but he says now people will come find him and they'll tell him, you know, and you can tell me like, I know, I know I just wandered off the street and I'm clearly haven't showered in days, but tell me the secrets of the Illuminati. They made you paint that, right? And, you know, presumably from a safe distance, he'll say, no, I just painted, give me a hundred grand as part of this project, paint whatever the fuck I wanted. And they'll tell him, yeah, of course he would say that. You're one of them, and, and it, it just you know because the world is is just completely in the grips of psychosis right now. No one will hear the plain truth, but the plain truth is he had a reason for everything. You know, some of the some of the the figures in there are based on kids in his neighborhood or his family or his friends. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, he's telling a story. He's telling yeah. the, the idea is that you know if we don't take care of the environment and if we don't fight back against fascism, then yeah, you know we are in trouble. Like it just as a species, yeah. which you know. It's also true, but you know the the notion that any of this is 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 in any way accurate just blows my mind. Because there's that was King Fahad Airport, yeah. In you know it's it's, the thing is massive, yeah. Like it's it's comically oversized. I think it's it's bigger than than um, than Hartsfield Jackson in Atlanta, and it gets something like one sixteenth of the flights. Yeah. And they built it because they had A a ton of money and B a bunch of fucking land to build it on. And that's but no one's talking about Illuminati plots with that thing. And it's it's just because here in North America we have bees in our head, and we have just decided that no, this is the only reason someone would build something forward thinking for the future is because lizard monsters, which I think nicely illustrates where we are in terms of our optimism. But don't forget about Blucifer. So what is Blucifer? So Blucifer, I personally think is this
1: amazing statue of a stallion that they have at Denver International Airport which I think is 32 feet high and it's stunning it's this chrome stallion rearing up with fiery red eyes and so it's become known as Blucifer whereas for me as someone that likes American football associates a stallion or a Bronco with the local football team known as the Denver Broncos so you fool, he rube. <laughs> but there is one strange aspect of that. The artist, Luis Jimenez, who created it, was killed by that statue as he was constructing
0: it. I mean, Did that you know sucks that? for him. <laughs> Clearly then, the Allu- this is all Illuminati. That was-
1: A bit yeah. fell off and uh, stabbed him in the leg, severed an artery, and he bled to death.
0: Oh, that sucks.
1: But that was two years before the the, the, the statue was- finished but uh, i personally think it's absolutely amazing
0: personally i've been there i I must have seen it i don't recall i know i saw a lot of the weird art inside
1: clearly a lot of conspiracy theorists are not into weird art as i am so for me i just find it fabulous i think it's it's deeply challenging artwork on a variety of levels but yeah you know i like dali and picasso and weird postmodern kind of stuff. I love William Blake stuff. And if you think Denver airport's weird, have a look at his work.
0: <laughs> oh. It drives me crazy, man. I was, I, like I said, I, I remember hearing about this stuff years ago. And when I was looking through articles, I just thought you gotta be kidding me. Cause the problem is we've, we've reached such a point now where this stuff is self-sustaining. It doesn't matter if it makes any sense. That almost makes it better for them. Yeah. If it doesn't make any sense. Like that's yeah. the point we've reached. And I I really worry about that, actually. I'll be honest with you. I worry about our capacity for critical thinking because we are just, we're so, we'd rather believe these crazy fantasies than deal with the very real problems in front of us.
1: Well, that's often the problem, isn't it? Because often these theories are pitched at certain people's ingrained belief systems, and therefore it simply magnifies their perceived problems or what they believe the world to be. And yeah. therefore, that's why they work. They're a self perpetuating suicide pact because they're aimed at people who will believe this because they already think like that anyway.
0: Yeah. yeah. So,
1: you know, I was talking when, when I interviewed Dr. Richard Gallagher and we were talking about the satanic panic. He was saying that somebody came, somebody was saying to him about all these Satanists that were kidnapping kids everywhere. And the claims were like 50,000 children a year were being kidnapped and so he thought i'm not having this this is absolute bollocks that was more than the whole missing persons numbers in north america in that year yeah of course but because it was at that era people couldn't substantiate it because they were just re- repeating rubbish
0: yeah that that's it and, and there's so much that happens like like um i was listening to uh uh, an episode of the Big Story, which is a Canadian news podcast, and they were talking about um, sort of the battle that le- that sex workers are having in Canada because credit card producer providers are making it difficult for them to do business, despite the fact that what they're doing is legal. And you know, there there is really puritanical people running these these businesses, mm. which just ha- are sort of unilaterally deciding. Well, no, we're not going to ser- we're not going to serve this particular industry because reasons. It's a legal industry. We just don't like it. And they always use the excuse of trafficking. That's always, always, always what's you know, the article. Well, we, we don't know these people are not being trafficked. But the the, the statistics don't match and, and I don't have them to hand. So I, you know I'm sure someone's going to say, Brandon, you're wrong. But the statistics do not match up with the claims. It's like whenever the Super Bowl happens, there's always the thing about you know supposedly trafficking goes up, and that is that's just not accurate.
1: No, it's like moon madness.
0: Moon madness. Oh, like the the, the full moon making people crazier.
1: Yeah, doesn't it's not true. Hospitals and and emergency services do not see spikes in events during that period.
0: It's, it's if- uh, what's that thing uh, where you you start seeing like, you see what you're looking for the confirmation bias. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Though there will be an event round here if somebody keeps fire, firing fireworks off at this time of night.
0: It's funny. I, I was editing the, uh, the Q&A and I heard a bunch.
1: <laughs> the bastards.
0: Is there like a cutoff time? Or is, is it, <laughs> yeah, Of course. What am I thinking?
1: Yeah, it's when they fall asleep. <laughs> yeah. Ahead of schedule. A year ago, I was living in Denver, Colorado and expecting a visit from my friend Chrissy who was flying in from the west coast. Her flight was supposed to arrive at 11.15pm, so at around 1030 I was gassing up at the station not far from my house. Just as I was about to climb back into the car and start leisurely making my way over to DIA, my phone beeped. It was a text from Chrissy saying, I just landed, are you here? Flights arriving early isn't all that uncommon, but 45 minutes early seemed crazy. I tried to call her, but the number just kept going to voicemail, so I rushed to the airport arriving at 11pm. There was nothing on the airline's app about the flight arriving early, so I started doing laps of the airport and trying Chrissy's number, getting her voicemail every time. A little after 11.15, I received exactly the same text that I had received at 10.30pm. I just landed. Are you here? At first I thought maybe the plane had internet access, and she had sent it earlier for some reason, so once we finally met up, I asked her to show me the timestamp of when she sent the text. It was at 11.15. She'd had no internet access on the plane, and no reason to send that while she was still flying in the air. I wish I would have screencapped both of the text conversations as proof, but we were both so freaked out by it that we just chalked it up as spooky and moved on. Text things like that are very strange. Obviously, there was stuff like that going on in the MH370 case as well. So, Oh, really? Yeah. People don't realize that even if a phone's been destroyed, the network will still try and collect, connect it. So you can ring the number and it'll ring. Oh, but, okay. Right. But the phone doesn't exist.
0: Of course. Right. That makes sense.
1: So people presume that that meant they were still alive because the phones were ringing. Right, right. Text messages from the future are a strange thing, because usually when we deal with paranormal communications, they're usually weird phone calls, aren't they, more than text? But I would imagine as we use smartphones and, and mobiles and such things going forwards, these may become more of a paranormal point of access for whatever's going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, it I wouldn't surprise me. I know I've taken to kind of when I'm having my anxiety spirals, I find myself on on Instagram quite a bit, and uh, I'll be just go through those like Ask Reddit things where people will, you know, the million different questions, and yes. I'll always go through the paranormal ones. And there was one little while ago that um, I thought was really interesting, and it was it was similar to this. It wasn't a text message, but it was a cell call where this person was, you know, they were doing whatever it was they were doing, and they they got there was a call from their mom, so they answered it. And their mo- they heard their mom say, you know, no, whatever your name is, like, don't do that or put that down or something like that. Don't, d- just don't, what, come on. And then they hung up and they thought, well, that was fucking weird. Like, what are you even talking about? Yeah. And it was definitely their mother's voice, but their mother never made that call.
1: What were they doing?
0: <laughs> well, it does make you wonder, but I, I, it, it, it didn't seem like it was the kind of thing where it didn't seem like it was connected to anything. It wasn't like, you know, they were being warned or anything. Just it was random. just this- Just random, yeah. And it it reminded me of something a long, long time ago. My the very last time I was in Belfast was back in two thousand eight, and I was talking to this kid in my hostel who was um, he was from Mexico, and -hmm. he was telling me a little bit about what the cartels will do. To uh, you know, they said you obviously they'll they'll kidnap people and they'll ransom them back to their families. But he said there's another thing they'll do. And this, bear in mind, this fourteen years ago. He said they will basically intercept your cell phone and record enough of you that they can piece together um, you saying things to them, Hmm. like these, these messages, which sound like you saying, you know, confirming that you have in fact been kidnapped when in actual fact you're just at school. Yeah. And so I think about that and I think, well, again, that's 14 years ago. So, I mean, what's possible now? And uh, so, I mean, maybe that was just what that was. And not that I think, you know, the cartels were trying to steal someone from Denver International Airport. Clearly, that's lizard people. Ah, infringing on their turf. Now, that's a turf where I want to see. <laughs> the Jalisco cartel versus the lizard people. My money is not on lizard people. Premonition. In my life, I have only had two premonitions. Both happened in 1992, a long time ago, yes, but a year full of disasters in the Netherlands. In both dreams, I was standing in front of a window and observing the disaster as it unfolded, in details so vivid I can still recall it. In the first dream, I found myself in an office overlooking a chemical factory, which I immediately knew was a nearby Nevsen Polymers factory, owned by Sindhu, Kamish Industrie Uthorn which used to be a Dutch company specializing in processing coal tar. In the dream, one of the reactor vessels suddenly exploded, setting the whole factory ablaze. If you know the history of Uthorn at all, you'll know that a few days later, on July 8, 1992, it did indeed happen. The day before the explosion, the incorrect chemical was used in the reaction chamber, and when it was then used on the following day, the reactor vessel overheated and eventually exploded. The force of the explosion was such that one of the valves was found two kilometers away. In the end, three people were killed and 11 were injured. A few months later, at the end of September 1992, I again had a vivid dream of standing in front of a window, this time in the Bilmer area in the southeast of Amsterdam, watching military planes dropping bombs on a block of apartments. Again, if you know your recent Dutch history... You'll know that in the early evening of October 4, 1992, an El Al cargo flight took off from Amsterdam Shiphole Airport headed to Tel Aviv. Just after takeoff, the captain notified air traffic control that they had lost power in two engines and requested to return to Shiphole. What he didn't know was that he not only lost power in those engines, those engines three and four, he physically lost the engines. They fell from the plane. I think that's what I perceived in the dream as the bombs falling. The captain tried to return the airplane to shiphole, but getting to the runway they had requested, which was longer and they felt better for an emergency landing, involved a number of turns, and it was during one of these that the plane finally came down. The flight crashed where two blocks of apartments met the apartments Grünwien and Klein kruthberg leaving a burning hole of rubble, eight stories over a length of about 10 apartments. The death toll was 43, of which four were aboard the plane, and it's speculated there could have been more as the area was known for its population of undocumented immigrants. Both of these disasters happened within 10 kilometers of where I was living at the time. So I have to wonder if that was the reason for my premonitions. Certainly since then, I have not had any others. I would very much like to keep it that way. Gotta say, Paul, I've never wanted to know the future. No, be careful what you wish for. And uh, just for our listeners, I was totally unfamiliar with this, uh, with this story. But I did a little bit of research because I had to build out what the person was saying. Because sometimes if, when someone's referring to a historical event like this, I'll try and confirm the facts And because you know, people don't always necessarily have all the facts. And I wanted to share this process because it just sounds fucking terrifying. This is basically how they lost the engines. So this is from Wikipedia. Flight 1862 was scheduled to depart at 5.30 PM, but was delayed until 6.20. It departed from runway 01L, later known as runway 36C. On a northerly heading at 6:22, once airborne, the aircraft turned to the right. Soon after, at 6:27 p.m. above the Guemir, a lake near Amsterdam, witnesses on the ground heard a sharp bang and saw falling debris, a trail of smoke, and a momentary flash of fire on the right wing while the aircraft was climbing. Engine number three, the right wing nearest to the fuselage, separated from the right wing of the aircraft, shot forward, damaged the wing slats, then fell back and struck engine number four tearing it from the wing. The two engines fell away from the aircraft, also ripping out a 10-metre stretch of the wing's leading edge. The loud noise attracted the attention of some pleasure boaters on the Gomir. The boaters notified the Netherlands Coast Guard of two objects they had seen falling from the sky. One boater, a police officer, said he initially thought the two falling objects were parachutists, but as they fell closer, they could see they were plane engines.
1: At 6.35pm local time. The aircraft nosedived from the sky and crashed into two high-rise apartment complexes at the bilge Mermeer neighbourhood of Amsterdam at the corner of a building where the Groovemier complex matched the Klein-Klutberg complex. It exploded in a fireball which caused the building to partially collapse inwards destroying dozens of apartments. The cockpit came to rest at the east of the building between the building and the viaduct of Amsterdam Metro Line 53 the tail broke off and was blown back by the force of the explosion.
0: And uh, again, we just thought we'd share that with you just because I'd never, I mean, I know these things happen, but I'd never actually heard of anything like that or just like heard such a vivid description. And I thought, what a goddamn nightmare.
1: Yeah. It reminds me very similarly of the very famous case involving a gentleman called David Booth from the US in 1979. What happened there? He had a reoccurring nightmare for 10 days in a row that a plane blew up in the sky and crashed into a residential area.
0: Right, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And he contacted the FAA and American Airlines and they actually took him seriously. Oh. And said, okay, but he couldn't give them a date or he wasn't really sure of the type of plane either. Right. But with his description, they thought it was one or two, one of two types of planes. Right. And on the 25th of May, a plane did blow up and land in that particular area. And he was watching the news when it happened. He was actually investigated because they couldn't understand how he would know so much about what was about to happen. So he was actually suspected of planting a bomb on it for a little
0: while. He was cleared of all charges. Of course. And and that's the thing. That's one of the reasons I don't ever want to know the future because there's fuck all you can do to change it. Mm -hmm. Because the thing is, if you tell someone what's going to happen, to stop them from doing it, then it doesn't happen. And they're going to think, well, we didn't have to do anything because nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And if you if you tell them and they don't change anything, then it happens. And now they're going to look at you because you, mentioned, because you somehow had knowledge of this thing that you could not possibly have known unless you were involved.
1: Yeah. There's an episode of Unsolved Mysteries with a woman who had a nightmare about a woman being murdered and knew where it happened and was so convinced she drove to where she dreamt and found the body. Holy shit. Told the police and the police arrested her. No kidding.
0: Whatever she happened was, with that case, do you know? Uh,
1: she was freed eventually. She was held for for a couple of days.
0: Holy smokes! There, there was a story, and I never, I never, I didn't put it in the book um, because, yeah, there. Um, I, I'm going to be very vague. Uh, there, there are like a lot of stories that are just not in the book for various reasons. Hmm. Um, oftentimes, because they tie into real life tragedies that I just felt would be ex- exploitative to to talk about. But yeah. there was this one story of of um a missing person where someone uh, a, this this person who had this dream was someone who's in a position of status in the community they're not you know it's not someone on the fringes this is someone who you know who has something to lose mm. they had a dream where this missing person came to them and said hey you have to come find me come okay. come look for me this is where i am and uh this person ended up going to the police and telling them this And to their credit, you know, the RCMP, they actually followed up on it. Of course, nothing was found at the location, but I actually think that's better Mm. because I feel like if someone had turned up a body, all of a sudden you have a lot of explaining to do Mm. because, you know, to find a missing person, especially, you know, someone who's pretty, pretty high profile, um, because you had a dream. Mm. That is, you know, that is difficult to maintain your career once that's out in the public eye.
1: Yes. Having had a premonition that unfortunately came true, I will say that it's probably the worst thing that could ever happen to you.
0: Of course. Jesus. Yeah. The accident. Mm. Better the future remain a mystery.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. What will be, will be. And I don't want to know what that will be until it occurs. No. Thank you very much. Split. Before I begin, let me give you some background. I was about 13 at the time, not under the influence of any narcotics or medication, nor have I taken any mind-altering narcotics or drugs since then. The event took place around 7 or 8 pm, after I had come back from a class trip to Washington DC. My father picked me up at the airport, and it was shortly after we began driving home on the highway that that's when I saw IT. IT was a steel grey object, an unknown distance away, somehow looking both close and far at the same time. In terms of shape, it was stereotypical for what people say about UFOs, perfectly circular, with a bulge in the middle on both sides, and a ring of lights around it. The lights were all large and gave off a glow that was hard to describe. Blue, yellow and white all at the same time yet they didn't give off any kind of flare or beam. When the craft moved, they also didn't give a typical trail that you would get when looking at a moving light out of a car window. The craft moved so perfectly, it looked as if it wasn't moving at all, like it matched the exact speed our car, of which, if you've ever driven down the I-95, is quite an impressive task. I tried to get my father's attention because I needed some confirmation that what I was indeed seeing was what I thought I was seeing. But in those days things were strained between us, so he brushed me off and kept driving. It felt like this went on for a while, but looking at the dashboard clock, I realised it had only been a few minutes. Things soon got even odder. The craft, while perfectly keeping pace with our car, started to move onto its side, for lack of a better term, where it was nearly impossible to see except for the bulges. It then did something that I will truly never forget. It split in half, but in a way that it was so mechanically perfect, I knew right then that it wasn't man-made. It split whilst it was moving, with no jittering, stalling, or any other evidence of mechanical process taking place. After it split for a few moments, it kept pace with the car. Then, with each half still on its side, shot across the sky at blinding speeds in separate directions. That's my story.
0: Make of it what you will. And so, Paul, I am very curious to know what you make of this, because I have never heard of anything anything such as this.
1: Really? I'm not surprised or or shocked by that report at all.
0: Really? so mm-hmm. I think because it seems so organic. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't seem like a machine. So no, I've, aside from Jordan Peele's Nope, which, you know, everyone should watch because it's very good. I've never heard of anything like that. So tell me, where have you heard this?
1: There's lots of reports of people seeing UFOs that split perfectly.
0: Interesting. I mean, I I guess I've heard stories of them splitting like much higher up, Mm -hmm. but never something that close. Yeah.
1: There's a few where people have reported seeing objects split or split in half and go off in different directions. Oh, okay. there's people reporting seeing things split and then they fly straight up. Um there's often people report objects splitting into smaller bits, like they're drones or something coming off them and flying off. Okay. I think in the the, the recent Unsolved Mysteries Michigan episode, they're saying that they looked like they some of the, some of the witnesses thought it was splitting. So it's it's not unheard of. It doesn't happen a lot. But there have been several reports like that over the years. And, okay. it's, the, and it's, the, it's the fact that it looks so perfect that makes people realize that it can't be man-made.
0: Yeah. well, That's what I was thinking. And, and that's why I, was, why I said organic. Like, if, if it's not man-made, I understand then, you know, you think, okay, extraterrestrial. But, but also, I just wonder, like, it seems like a thing, mm-hmm. you know, like some kind of life form that we don't fully grasp. Well, who's to say some of them aren't? fair yeah
1: <laughs> and that's that end as i've said this before when discussing this the possibilities of it you either presume that they're all coming from the same place which i i i just don't put any credit in right because why would a race of beings that are able to travel the universe have such a variety of vehicles. And also, if we are to believe people who have had encounters or seen the pilots or creatures carried in such craft, that they are so vastly different throughout the last 70, 80 years of the modern UFO history.
0: I don't know. I figure figure if I had an opportunity to drive a bunch of different cars, I probably would. (laughs) The aliens have a used used spaceship lot. They drive a different one every day, depending on how they feel.
1: Yeah. Well, they could be. They could be like Jay Leno.
0: I hope they're not like Jay Leno.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know. I think if we are to believe in the concept of extraterrestrial visitors, but only think it's one planet, then I find that more difficult to believe in that the fact that there are numerous planets that have mastered the ability to travel as they wish
0: oh yeah no i i agree completely
1: but then again you would say well you only have to look at the earth to see that not everybody looks the same
0: i i think that's one of the things i have a hard time even myself wrapping my head around you know say for example i've been watching very slowly because usually i watch television with nick um (laughs) uh, i've been watching andor the new Hmm. star wars series and it's actually very good. I think it's probably one of the best Star Wars things I've seen. But, you know, sometimes I forget, you know, it's, you, you, when you watch like a world destroyed, you think like, okay, so Star Wars, so they're going to blow up a planet. But when you actually sort of transpose that in your head with, with Earth and you imagine what you're losing, hmm. the, the diversity of, if we set aside even just the animals, like the diversity of cultures and people, you know, hmm. you're right. I mean, who's to say that um, we sort of have this idea like, okay, it's a planet. You know, that's, that's a, that's the, uh, the, the, the leopard print planet. That's the, this planet, but these, it, it's, it's even possible that you've got two warring nations with vastly different, um, philosophies mm-hmm. exploring space from, from different sides of, of one planet. But we just, we think of everything as like monolithic. Oh, that's Mars, the Martian government, you know, cause like there's a fucking earth government.
1: Well, yeah, um, so I think often it, it falls into two camps of, of creating a fantastical version of of what we believe where wherever they're from, they all get on and they're all space brothers. Or we don't entertain the concept that civilizations on the same planet could be vastly different. Yeah. You know, if if somebody from another planet came here and went to a zoo, for example, (laughs) how would you explain the fact that giraffes and gorillas are mammals
0: and so are we? I mean, in fairness, I probably wouldn't be explaining any of this stuff because I'm probably the wrong person to explain biology to anyone.
1: <laughs> but it's it's one of those, I mean, you look at, I mean, my, one of my favorite creatures on the planet are octopus. So, right. you know, you look, you look at, even if you just take that species on its own and look at what they can achieve and they can do and the intelligence they show, you know, and they're brilliant at just pissing off and getting out of places <laughs> and doing a runner, you know, and I've seen footage of them on boats where they've just straight through like a tiny hole back into the sea. Yeah, you know, it's it. I, I never fail to be mesmerised by the potential of of what octopi
0: can do. Oh yeah, I I I used to I used to eat you know octopus and squid and I I can't anymore mm-hmm. because I know better. Yeah, just bothers me, you know. Mm. Yeah,
1: I'm not here to try and say. How I believe the universe is governed.
0: <laughs> that's my job, damn it. No.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, but that, yeah, I, th- I think that's a fascinating story.
0: All right, so we have one last story for you. It's, it's a long one. So, we're going to take a quick break to pay the bills and then we'll be right back. All right, so our last story of tonight is taken from the book we keep talking about, Martin Caden's Ghosts of the Air. And this is not the entire story. This is a a heavily truncated version of the story, even though it is quite lengthy and Paul and I will be taking turns on it. Um, I really encourage you, if if you find any of what we've talked about on the show interesting, check out Ghosts of the Air. You can get it. uh, Paper copies are difficult to come by. They're quite expensive. Unless, like Paul, you managed to score a bargain. <laughs> but uh, you could get it for, I want to say $9.99 on Kindle. Uh, it had, the Kindle version does have the intro by John Keel, by the way. And uh, it's, it's worth your time. I'm about f- halfway through it and, and quite enjoying myself. So this, this story comes from there. And again, there's much more to the story, so I do encourage you to seek it out. The story is called Habit Field. Those of us who've flown small planes know their pleasures. We slide back windows, jam swinging doors up under a wing, strip off our shirts, feel the wind against our skin and face and hair. Some of us counted our flights by the cigars we smoked. I've done it in Cubs and Aroncas and Stearmans and Wacos. The open cockpit bird's the best. You have got that little curving windscreen between you and the hurricane force wind, and you're one with your machine. This is the kind of flying Judge Bacon was doing on the day of this story, even to the point of making wide circles to avoid areas where air traffic might be heavy. Judge Bacon says, Although it was early morning with not a cloud in the sky, I phoned Tulsa Flight Service for a weather briefing, as is my usual practice. Great news! I was told I'd have clear sailing all the way, and the sky would remain cloudless. I did pre-flight on my little Starduster 2 and had wheels up out of Tulsa at about 9.30 in the morning. The temperature was already in the upper 80s and going higher when I took off. It was perfect for flying without a shirt on, and this kind of weather was an experience of great pleasure in my little open cockpit airplane. I'd been flying for about an hour or so. It was marvelous. I hadn't even seen a wisp of cloud or another airplane. And then, I had my head down in the cockpit looking at a flight chart. It apparently had been some time since I'd glanced up and looked at the sky because suddenly... I felt what appeared to be cold air on my bare back and shoulders. That didn't make any sense. What I saw as I looked around, well, let me explain the temperature. It had dropped instantly at least 15 or 20 degrees. That kind of temperature change where I was flying and the weather forecast I'd had from flight service simply does not compute.
1: I looked around in disbelief. A short time before I'd been in a cloudless sky, Now I was surrounded by black clouds that seemed to be churning with great energy and mixing with off-white colours. I was actually shocked at how the weather had changed so quickly, so drastically. I looked down at the ground and my disbelief mounted because I saw strong winds hurling up clouds of dust across the fields below and all about me. Even faster than I can relate what was happening, the clouds were closing in around me as swiftly as they had formed, seemingly out of nowhere. No question but that that this was more than just clouds. I was in the midst of a huge thunderstorm, perhaps an entire line or area of such storms, and I didn't cherish the idea at all of finding myself in a hailstorm in my little fabric-covered bird. The clouds came at me from all sides. They were enormous and becoming more violent with every passing minute. I could feel the stardusters taking strong blows from sudden turbulence. Landing as quickly as I could now became my entire world. I looked to the left of the cowling and saw a clear, bright opening in the wall of blackness rushing closer and closer against me. And in the centre of that hole, like a miracle, was one of the largest airports, and, I might add, one of the most welcome airports I had ever seen. There were very long runways and no obstacles. I was already in my descent, one eye on the boiling clouds and the other on my flight chart circling down into that hole and at the same time trying to locate the airport on that chart finally i found something on the chart i saw an airport layout that resembled the long runway on which towards i was flying the chart read habit field i'd never heard of it and i was even more surprised to discover that the chart didn't indicate any listed radio frequencies for the field
0: the place was huge Still circling, I came around in the descending turn and caught sight of a control tower looming high above other buildings. I thought, for Christ's sakes, I've got a chart, and they've forgotten to print the radio frequencies. Okay, if there isn't a primary frequency, I'll go to Unicom. I called to the tower on one twenty-two point eight megahertz. Nothing. I went through the frequencies we use for oddball airports and out-of-the-way places. Still nothing. The storm, and it was a full-fledged boomer by now, kept getting worse. The clouds were darker and thicker and the winds really gusting. I went down low and buzzed the tower, flying directly alongside so they couldn't possibly miss me. Well, I guess they did miss me the first time, so I came around. By now I should have had half that field hopping with my low pass and buzzed the tower again. Still nothing. I scanned the field for any planes that might have been taxiing on the runways. More nothing. I couldn't see anyone in the tower. I failed to get any light signals and this was getting pretty stupid with that storm dropping on me, so I decided to land no matter what and argue with the FAA later. I didn't bother checking the windsock. I didn't need to. The winds were so strong now that dust and tumbleweeds scoured the ground. All I had to do was fly into that mess and the starduster settled easily. When I sat the little bird down, holding the stick full back and taxiing slowly because of the increasing winds, I noticed immediately tall weeds growing out of cracks in the runway. That was tough to understand. I wondered why the people who ran this place were so neglectful in maintaining such a large airport. As I rolled to a stop, I pointed the nose of my bird directly toward the tower, making every exaggerated movement of control services the wind allowed. Still no light. This was really crazy. I added power to taxi up to the front of the tower and killed the switches. I'd nosed the plane into the wind, and as soon as the propeller stopped turning, I scrambled out, bringing my own chocks with me, and secured the plane. Now I could find out what was going on and get the starduster tied down. I looked up at the huge tower again, and the sense of something wrong really hit me. One large pane of glass in the tower was broken out. The place had to be filled with dust and debris. Then I saw a door,
1: banging open and shut in the wind, slamming back and forth with great racket. Not a soul stirred. I began to wonder if all this was real. Nothing was right and everything was wrong and the feeling became stronger and stronger. Not because of any imagination, but because of what I kept running into. I noticed a riding lawnmower sitting up on some blocks. Alongside the mower was an open box of tools where someone had obviously been working on that mower. Alongside the toolbox was a thermos bottle and cup half filled with dust-covered coffee. Everything looked as if the entire place had been busy, and then suddenly, absolutely abruptly, Everything stopped right in the middle of whatever was going on at that field. I kept walking, looking about me. I whistled shrilly several times and all I got back was the wind gusting and roaring. So I shouted. I did this for several minutes as I walked along. No answer, and still I couldn't see a soul moving. Or not moving, for that matter. I walked by several large hangars. I remember shaking my head in wonder. The hangar doors were either fully or partly open. Everything was covered with dirt as if this field had been abandoned, as close to instantly as you can get several years ago. I continued to yell and whistle as I approached each building. Still nothing. I couldn't find a human being, a dog, a cat, nothing. Ever get the feeling you're somewhere between here and there? A sort of limbo? Well, I sure had it now. The hair on the back of my neck felt as if it was standing straight up and the sense of wrongness kept increasing steadily. I walked along a row of airplanes and vehicles, everything covered heavily with dust. I looked everywhere for signs, something that would identify this place out of nowhere. Nothing. I went back to my airplane and started the other way and finally saw an abandoned pickup truck with the name Hangover Mining Company painted on the side. The windows were down in the truck. I walked up to a row of other vehicles, all with the windows down and all filled with dust. I heard a banging sound. It was the open door of an airplane slamming back and forth. The sense of eeriness grew
0: stronger as I went along. Although now when I look back on it and review the feelings I was going through, it seemed kind of funny. Uh, You can laugh at yourself when it's all over, but it certainly wasn't funny at that time. Everything I was used to in an airport was foreign. It was alien. A strange airport, strange weather, strange feelings, and the large tumbleweeds bouncing and rolling didn't help. I remember thinking of a movie I'd seen as a child. In that film, a pilot was flying cross-country and, for some reason, was forced onto a strange airport where no one could be found. Dishes were still on tables and windows were open. The movie ended when an atomic bomb was dropped on the town immediately nearby, which, had actually been set up to test the effects of a nuclear explosion on an average town. By now, I was headed back to the Starduster, and I recall wondering, surely I haven't landed in some place in Kansas where they're going to drop a damn bomb. Sure, it's funny now, but at the time, it was mighty heavy on my mind. And then, just as crazy was that this crazy storm never did rain. The clouds rushed low overhead, and the wind howled, and it should have been pouring, but everything remained bone dry. That was it. I didn't want to stay any longer at that airport, no way. Every instinct I had was telling me to leave and to leave immediately. I looked up, and the weather was just as crazy as it was before. That roiling sky wasn't getting any worse, and I don't know if I judged my weather correctly, it also wasn't getting any better. It was as if the weather situation was locked in. To the devil with this place. I pulled the chocks, stowed
1: them in the airplane, and fired up. As I taxied out, I went through strong emotions about taking off. No matter how weird this place was, I was on the ground. If I took off, it could be into some pretty nasty weather. I weighed both choices. The alternative to flight was to remain here in this airfield of incredible improbabilities. I took off. I stayed beneath the thick cloud cover. The storm above me remained constant, clouds swirling and boiling about as if from a heavy oil fire. It was a short flight to the town of Lyons, Kansas, and I wasted no time in getting down to the airport runway. As I blew in from the terrible-looking sky, an attendant ran out from the operation shack to chalk and secure my plane. He had a look of complete astonishment on his face. A little starduster, too, doesn't often come whizzing in through boiling clouds and a terrible sky. where do you come from?' he asked, disbelief still showing on his face. I told him what I'd been through, and I had landed at this crazy airport that showed on my chart as Habit Field.
0: The man actually recoiled. I mean, physically recoiled. You didn't really land there, did you? He asked, his mouth agape. I told him that's exactly what I'd done. So what? I finished and again thought, Christ, I've broken some terrible federal rule. He looked at me, shaking his head. Mister, he said slowly. His face reflecting all sorts of terrible inner thoughts. No one lands there. There are some mighty strange goings on there. This was downright ridiculous. You're not making much sense, I said to him, as easily as I could, because the man was acting real spooked. Why doesn't anyone land there? He stared at me and just started walking away. Never asked if I needed fuel or anything. Just started walking. No one lands there, he repeated, and he was gone. Several times I started to return to that field, to that hangover mining company or whatever it was on an old military base, and I was going to take cameras and friends with me, but each time, for various reasons, something stopped me, and we never did get to go back. From what I understand now, it's as if that place I visited never existed. I've heard it's called Sunflower Field. Everything I saw there is supposed to be gone. Some say it was never there. But now, according to what other pilots have told me, Sunflower Field is used as a glider airport and for parachute instruction and skydiving, but that is one damn big airport for gliding and jumping. But it's a bit comforting to hear the airport is functional and being used, if, and this is still a very big if, it was the same airport where I landed. I love that story, Paul.
1: It's strangely chilling, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. that When I was like, say all the stories I read, I thought that's the one I want to read directly on the show. I'm not going to adapt it. We'll just read it directly. But I mean, and of course there's, there's stuff that makes even less sense, you know, because like Habit Field, I, I looked it up. Habit Field's a real place. Mm. Um, it's still there. Uh, and actually I'm going to include a link in the show notes for our listeners. Cause there's a, uh, a website called underground Ozarks that has some photographs of what it looks like now, but, uh, habit stands for, uh, Hutchinson Air Base Industrial Tract. And it's located just outside of Hutchinson, Kansas. Apparently it was originally an Air National Guard base. And it was closed in 1968 because they were reducing stateside Air Force and naval installations to pay for the cost of the Vietnam War. Mm. So basically it became a private airport in 71. And yeah, it was used for gliders. Uh so I mean it makes sense it would have been um abandoned, but uh it's still uh, some of the things he said, like the the, the I was thinking, like, is it did it feel creepy because he didn't understand the situation, or did it feel creepy because there was something else going on there? Mm, I think it's a bit of both, isn't it? I do, I do. I I actually tried to find other stories from Sunflower because it's also called Sunflower Aerodrome. Didn't really find anything. It was just this one. Um, But I'd be very curious to know if there's haunting in the, if there's anything, any high strangeness in the area. Definitely. It's um,
1: yeah. I mean, places like that usually have some kind of weird things attached to it. But it's it's the reaction of the of the guy at the normal airport that seems to be like, well, clearly other people have had this experience.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was weird. And there was also again, I, I we didn't read this part of the story, listeners, because we want you to seek out the book. But there was uh, a phone call placed to that field. By someone that this this uh, judge knows, trying to ascertain exactly who owned the field, and they were very very the people who answered the phone were very strange, and you know, what they said was very unusual, and then they stopped answering the phone. So it, you do, it does seem like you know there was something off. And actually, the other thing, of course, was Paul. If you remember from the book, uh, this judge was sort of surveying his plane after he'd got to Lyons, and he saw that one of his rubber wheels had somehow had a soft metal wire embedded inches into it. Uh-huh. And the wheel is so dense, it's, the rubber is so dense that you, you couldn't drive a nail into it uh-huh. to, you know, without causing severe damage. And somehow this soft wire, this soft metal wire had somehow become embedded through the tire. Uh-huh. And supposedly he showed it to some people and they had no, they could not explain how this came to be. So yeah. it, I don't know, it, it's, it's a fascinating story. And and again, it it's one of those things where I think there's probably several different things happening. So it's going to be impossible to truly nail down what it is we're seeing. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm sure there's one of those that happened over here as well. Very similar where a guy was flying and had some difficulties, although it was bad weather and he spotted a, an airfield out of nowhere and landed and he basically landed in the past.
0: Oh shit. Okay
1: but there were actually people there and he was getting really confused about it. And then all of a sudden it just, everything changed and it was just abandoned.
0: Oh, wow. I would love to know where that was.
1: I'll have to dig that out. I saw that a few years ago. Hmm. I'll do some digging in that one. But yeah, it's a very strange thing, especially that it exists. But yeah, I mean, obviously the book came out in the mid nineties. So it would be interesting to, to date when this really happened what date this happened for the judge because then that might give us an idea but even so the additional information around it still makes it seem an extremely strange incident regardless
0: yeah if i'm not mistaken and i'm just going to double check before we head out if i'm not mistaken i want to say that story happened in the early 1970s
1: but even so it was a private airport then it just doesn't make sense does it
0: no i mean it, it was sold well, it was sold in 68 and it became a glider, a glider port in, or a, a, like a glide, yeah, a glider port in 71. So, there was a period where it, um, you know, was in different hands. So, I suppose it's possible, you know, there was something nefarious happening there. Okay, so this was 1976. So, this Ooh. was actually five years after it had yeah. become a place for gliders. So, that makes even less sense. Fascinating. Okay, now I'm, now I'm, now I'm, I'm, my interest is, my interest is renewed. I was already interested, but now knowing that the time doesn't add up, because I, Again, dates fly out of my head, so I sort of just assumed it was in the period between when it had been sold and, and when it became a, a glider port, but clearly uh, not the case. Yeah. How strange. Well, if you we have any listeners in Kansas and you, and you know any more about Habit Field or Sunflower Aerodrome, let us know. Ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. All right. Well, that was, that was terror in the air, Paul. That was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Though I think we might have frightened a few people. And probably pissed off some people because of Denver Airport. So (laughs) it's real. The Masons, the the Masonic symbol on the time capsule. Sure, whatever. Have fun. (laughs) All right. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey there listeners, before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help, and when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help.
1: We're not gonna try and talk you out of self-harming right now, because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well, Just how important mental health can
0: be, it's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. That's 988.
1: In the UK, the number to call is 116-123. Or text SHOUT. That's S H O U T. To 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114.
0: However, bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, Please know that we've both been where you are, and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. As always, thanks to Luke, Sarah, Anthony, and Joseph, and everyone else who's part of the Ghost Story Guys family. Don't forget to check out Luke's podcast, Luke Lore, now part of the Connected Podcast Network. You can find that everywhere. Find Podcast Live. His most recent episode, uh, which should be out for the public, or it's going to have to be out for the public by the time this comes out is a Halloween special with Amon Mazingo from AfroTales. So I, I haven't edited that yet, but I bet it's going to be a great conversation. Those are both two, two of my favorite people. So you're going, to, uh, you're going to dig that. And of course, the latest episode of Weird Together aired last night as I'm recording this. And that was me and Joseph talking about the uh, well, the latest, I won't say greatest film from the uh, whatever remains of Italian film legend Dario Argento. The film is Dark Glasses <laughs> and perhaps viewing them through those would improve the experience. But uh, uh, yeah, that would, yeah, exactly. Covering your eyes, would have as, that would have helped the situation. You can find Weird Together. I, I always put a link in the show notes. It's on, it has its own YouTube channel. And that's, uh, again, that's a monthly show. But most of all, thanks to my friend and co-host, the legendary, inimitable, Paul Bestel, the paranormal Johnny Carson, host of Mysteries and Monsters. Paul, what's coming up on M&M?
1: Well, this week as it's Halloween, I've obviously got one of my favorite guests, Ruth Roper Wilde, taking me around and about the UK, diving into some strange and haunted roads all over the place, and even touching on, ironically, some ghost planes outside of Sheffield. Fantastic. Which is uh, one of those wonderful coincidences that often happens in the world of the weird. Um, And then coming up is the return of the marvelous David Weatherly. Fantastic. David is a fascinating dude. Yes. We're off to Utah.
0: That I'm sorry about, but.
1: (laughs) I've never been. I can't comment. But obviously, there's one particular place in Utah that most people will have heard of. And we talk about that quite a bit.
0: Oh, that must be the Olive Garden in Salt Lake City that I went to.
1: Yes. Yes, it is. Yes. Really fascinating. That is the Museum.
0: Of course, you're referring to Skinwalker Ranch. Indeed. Indeed. And obviously, David's been. Oh, right. Yeah. I I cannot wait to hear that conversation. Yeah.
1: So, uh, yeah, looking good. And then the Faye
0: are on their way. God damn it, Paul. (laughs) And where can everyone find you online?
1: So Mysteries and Monsters is on all podcast platforms, and we're across all social media if you just look for Mysteries and Monsters too,
0: Brilliant. I'm on Facebook, or sorry, not Facebook. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Largely the Truth. (laughs) My interview, my show Largely the Truth of Brennan's store is still out there. I'm going to be relaunching it probably, I'm thinking in the new year. I'm going to have a new format, new storytelling format, no more interviews. Uh, so yeah, anyways, that, that'll be out there for now though. You can find me here. You can find my book, a strange little place available everywhere. Find books are sold though. Mostly Amazon, actually right now only Amazon. And, uh, of course I'm on weird together every month with Joseph Camo. And that's where we talk about the latest and greatest in independent horror films. Uh, sometimes just the latest as in the case of this most recent episode. And again, you can find that on YouTube. And if you're a ghost Story guy's patron, you get the audio version as well. So you don't have to look at our mugs while we're doing it. Whoa, don't like how I phrase that. While we're doing the show. <laughs> Sorry, Joseph. I know you're listening. It's the OnlyFans stream. <laughs> they never did they never did call me back. I'm well, shocked. If nothing
1: else, that's one reason to get fit and in shape with that personal trainer. And they'll be <laughs> begging for you to come back and see those guns.
0: I don't think they will. I'm pretty sure. Never say never. And I used to be able to like bench press three hundred pounds. They still had a restraining order against me. <laughs> Speaking of Patreon, if you want to join the team, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. From there, you get access to all of our bonus shows. Physical rewards are on pause until I get back to Victoria, so sometime in the new year. But digital rewards you get access to right away, and that includes all our bonus shows. Book of the Dead, Host Adventures, Me and Paul. We actually just dropped a two-hour episode of Me and Paul. Talk bullshit, we talk movies, we talk the paranormal. It's It's really, really great. And uh, I also put an episode of Sunken Library last month. There's lots of cool shit to listen to. And again, you get all of that at patreon.com slash ghost Guys, As we said at the top of the show, if you want to pick up some Ghost Story Guys merch, find our Tee Public store by clicking the link in the show notes or by going to ghoststoryguys.com and following the links. And if you do buy something, make sure to send us a picture. We'll put it up on our social media. We love seeing what you guys pick up. Uh, we, we're honored every single time you guys buy merch from us it just uh yeah i mean I, i've been doing this almost six years now and i still am humbled every time so oh, fuck, i'm fucking i'm humbled every time someone downloads a show but i'm humbled also every time someone buys some of our merch and wears it out in the world that's that's pretty cool so again you can you can do that at uh well again by following the t public link in the show notes or at ghoststoryguys.com any guest spots coming up paul
1: yes hopefully i'm I've been invited to join the team over on Mission Spooky. Oh, very cool. So uh, hopefully that will be out some point in November, I think. And that's all I've got planned. I am planning to take things easy in the next few weeks since there's a small matter of a football tournament coming up.
0: Oh, we, you got to save up your energy.
1: <sighs> Four games a day, mate. It takes it out of you. Holy
0: shit. Well, uh, well, don't forget to keep an eye on ghoststoryguys.com for when Paul's uh, interview with Mission Spooky does come up. We put links to all of our spots there. Everyone who works with the show, so myself, Paul, Luke, Anthony, uh, anyone who who does spots on shows, we'll put them there. Uh, Myself, I am appearing on Spooks, Creeps, and Assorted Devilry uh, next week. I don't know when it'll be out, but I'm recording that then. I'm going to be on Jim Her- one of Jim Harold's shows. I'm not sure if it's going to be Paranormal Podcast or Ghost Insight. That'll be next week. And I'm going to be on a show called The Headwaters, which is a BC based podcast sometime, I think, maybe in possibly in, I don't know when. I said, I that's pre recorded. I sent all the questions in. I have no idea when it comes out. But because I've got strange out, you're going to be seeing me pop up on more shows. And hell, if you want me on your show, Email me, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. You want me to come on your show, talk about Strange by God. you know, As long as it's not your first show or your second show, maybe your your first like five shows, then I will be there.
1: You were on my third
0: show. That's different. (laughs) Okay, not the first or second. I'll be on your third show. (laughs) So again, you'll find all our guest spots collected at and We always put them up on our social media too, on the Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Speaking of which, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash guys. Don't forget to come join our Facebook group, The Ghost Story Guys Finally Made a Group. We're also on Instagram as The Ghost Story Guys. Shout out to our composer, Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and composer Jerry Smith. If you want to hire Jerry for your next project, shoot them an email at rainydaysforghosts at gmail.com. Our theme song, Radio Into the Darkness We Goes, composed and performed by Peter Kursoff of Pizanta Music. Find more from him at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you get your tunes. Our story's theme is The Future Belongs to Them Now by Hexagram. Find more from them by searching for Hexagram wherever you get your music. Remember, that's Hexagram with two X's, not three. And of course, uh, as we said this time, instead of going out on our regular music, we're going to be going out on a song sent in by our listener, Brooke. Of course, we read Brooke's message at the beginning of the show. And the song is by Garrett Long. And of course, Garrett passed earlier this year in a terrible accident. Garrett was a talented, talented young man. And I think that this song is just, uh, I don't know, it feels appropriate. So we wanted to play the song for you so everyone could appreciate what Garrett had created. So as we head out, you are going to be listening to Garrett Long, and Richland Drive 29, and I I guess that's it.
1: Well, we'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until then...
0: Into the darkness we go.
1: I have a really good ghost hole. Oh fucking hell! <laughs> I'll take you from the top. In terms of shape, it was stereoty- oh, fuck me! <laughs> In terms of shape, it was stereotypical for what people <laughs> See, I'm laughing now. I've said it.
0: <laughs> the judges will accept it. Thank you.
1: Sorry, I forgot. I forgot where, the, where we speak English properly here. Sorry.
0: That's that's one way to put it. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> it's all yours. They're not you. Oh, you're right. Absolutely. (laughs) Fuck. I will if you want. (laughs) Do my work for me, bitch. No.